One time I was drunk on a morning show in Montana The host asked me if I had a nickname Said my friends called me the Dirtbag King She said on the air I started giggling Hasn't had me back but now I've got this podcast Welcome to my podcast Dirtbags, thanks so much for tuning in to A Dirtbag's Guide to Life on the Road. This is your host, Charles Ellsworth. I'm so stoked to have you here right now. We've got a great episode this week, a conversation with my friend Kat Hamilton. Kat's great, got a lot of experience and a lot of great knowledge about being a DIY musician, being an artist, being true to yourself, all sorts of things. We, we follow so many different threads on this conversation and we go, we cover so much ground. Yeah, we went the distance, we went over two hours and it's just a great conversation from top to bottom. So stick around, it's great right up until the end. Before we get to this conversation, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor for the podcast, which you guessed it, is my Patreon. Now, Patreon is a place that you can go to support artists or creative endeavors that you think are important or that are meaningful to you in your life and that you just feel like supporting financially. So you can sign up for three, five, ten dollars a month, whatever you can go without. And that money goes directly to me supporting the podcast, making sure I can keep making it, making sure I can keep making music, put tires on the van when I need new tires, things like that. So if you're not going to miss five dollars, ten dollars, then you can go over to patreon.com for slash Charles Ellsworth and sign up. I promise you, it makes a huge difference to me. Whether you think 5 or $10 a month is a lot, it adds up and it helps me out a lot. So thanks a lot to everybody who signed up for my Patreon so far. If you've been signed up since the beginning of the year, you're going to be getting something in the mailbox soon. Uh, it might be a sticker, it might be a, a print of a piece of artwork, it might be a mug, t-shirt, Depending on what tier you've signed up for, you're going to be getting something in the mail. And it's got a design on it by one of my favorite artists, John Ross Boyce. If you don't follow me on Instagram, you should go check it out, charles.smellsworth. This week, there's a picture of me holding up a poster that John designed that was waiting for us when we showed up to a show in Provo, Utah a couple tours ago. And it's just, as soon as I saw it, I was like, I got to find out who this artist is and buy this image from them. So put it on some merchandise and I decided to make it an exclusive thing that you can only get at Patreon. So sign up at patreon.com forward slash Charles Ellsworth for 5, 10, 20 bucks a month, whatever you won't miss. And I promise you it makes a big difference to me and helps me keep making the podcast, helps me keep the wheels on the road and just helps me make it all make sense. So thank you so much to everyone who's a patron right now. And thank you to everyone who's listening if you're not in a position to sign up for Patreon right now, money's kind of tight. I totally get it. I've been there so much in my life. It's it's just very familiar. So don't worry about it. There's ways you can help me out that are awesome. One of those things is leaving a review in the iTunes store for the podcast and leaving us a rating. Those make a big difference to pushing us in the algorithm, getting us in front of new listeners and growing podcast. It doesn't take very long for you and it makes a huge difference for me. And if I'm going to be honest, I don't have any reviews on the iTunes store right now. I'd really like it if you guys would do it. I feel kind of like a fucking loser. So please go leave me a review, leave us a rating. And if you're listening on Spotify, make sure you're following us. And I think you can rate it. I don't, I don't know. I think you can rate it. I don't know how it works, but please do those things. And this week, if you could tell 
one person about the podcast, someone that you think would love the show or that you think would get something out of it. Maybe they're a DIY musician or an artist that that needs just someone else talking about how difficult it can be because Lord knows how much I like to talk about that. Please just tell one person and help us grow our audience. I'd love for this podcast to get out to more and more people. And the best way for that to happen is by you guys sharing it. So go out there, be missionaries of the dirtbag life. I would love you for it. I won't charge you 10% of your income or anything like that, like other institutions that ask you to be missionaries. And I accept everyone. So go spread the gospel of the dirtbag. And I will be very, very grateful. So that all being said, please stick around for the whole interview with my friend Kat Hamilton. It's great. You're going to enjoy it. And follow her on all of the social media. Check her out on Twitter this summer. Hello. 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 We did it. We we connected. I believe it's recording. I believe we're good. We can we can journey off into podcast land together. Oh, thank God! I'm drinking a nice coffee right now. I love podcast land. Let's do it. Sweet. Well, I just want to start off by asking you a little bit of, to, to tell us a little bit about who you are and, and you know where you're from my name is Kat Hamilton Kat with a K Hamilton with musicals and I am calling in from sunny Los Angeles California nice and how is it there how's how's LA I was there with you a few weeks ago and it was great is it still great we were we were, we were so happy to have you in our little bubble of joy that's um, so fun I mean, to be honest, like, I just really love L.A. so much more than I ever thought I would as a person who didn't live in L.A. for many, many years. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, you could argue mm-hmm. that the, tra- the traffic situation takes a certain kind of person. Uh-huh. But I think it speaks to my overall disposition because I used to, I mean, I'm going on tour again, but I used to, my favorite thing in the world was being on road trips from mm-hmm. when I was, like, a little girl to now. Road trips were my absolute favorite. Same. There was just something about it. I loved the control of the environment. Like, mm-hmm. I get to put on the exact music or the exact podcast. I have my nice coffee. And so people tend to stress over traffic here, but I think my love for road tripping and my love for being in a car and, like, being, like, sitting in one place while I'm also heading somewhere, uh-huh. like, the traffic just doesn't bother me. It inconveniences me with um, showing up on time, but it doesn't bother me. <laughs> That's great. That, I mean, I think that, that speaks a little bit to, like, a kind of zen quality. Uh, my friend Carson, who was Carson uh, Oliver, who was actually a guest on this podcast a while ago, but he once told me about New York City traffic or, or people in the subway. He's like, um, you're not stuck in traffic. You are traffic. Mm-hmm. And that, if you can remember that while you're dealing with those situations or while you're in traffic, you know, it's like you're a part of this thing. You you are it. It is you. It's not you versus it or versus all of the people around you. It's it's just like you're in it and and resisting that is only going to cause you to suffer. Totally. And like, you know, I lived in New York City because that's where we went. Mm-hmm. And I spent many years there, and truthfully, I like I prefer driving to the subway, ten out of ten. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think being a woman on the subway in New York may be a different experience. 
it's uh, definitely a different experience, but I also don't like it. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I'm like the sure. least bother, botherable person. You know what I mean? Like I'm, I mean, just statistically, I'm like an over six foot white male. Like people don't really fuck with me. So, and I still don't like it. So I can't imagine. Yeah, like, I mean, trigger warning, but, like, there were many occasions in New York City where I'd look up on my phone and on the subway, and a man would be masturbating looking at me. And I think, like, my, my, like, experience of living in L.A. and having a car and knowing that, like, even if I'm stuck in traffic Santa Barbara for three hours, like, I'm not dealing with, like, unwelcome detention or, like, suddenly dangerous situations inside of my vehicle after years of going through that is a great comfort. No, I, I definitely believe that. And that's, that's funny that we got to this so quickly because that was something I was going to ask you is like, what do you like better, New York or L.A.? But it sounds like you're liking L.A. much more. I do. Um, it's weird. New York was like my dream. And then I guess it's a good life lesson because sometimes the dream of something is more interesting or healthy than the reality. Oh, and yeah. Like, I grew up. In California, I grew up in Cordillera, California, which there's not much to say about it, but it's right next to where Star Wars was filmed. Okay, what's it called again? Cordillera. It is a tiny city. For instance, I had a friend growing up who had a house that was in three cities at once. That's how tiny these cities are. So their living room was in one city, their bedroom was in another, and their kitchen was in another. Okay, what part of California is this in? The Bay Area, um, it's right before, like, it's between Oakland and San Francisco, um, or okay, you can between San Francisco and Napa, depending on how you drive it. But, yeah, my parents live, like, three exits off of the 101 from San Francisco, and right near where Star Wars was filmed. Um, okay. It's very beautiful. But it's a tiny little town, and so I grew up there, and I had a poster of CBGB and the Ramones standing in front of it above my bed for, like, mm-hmm. years. And I was like, someday I'll live in New York and have a punk band, and we'll play at CBGB. Which, hilariously, I lived in New York and had a punk band. <laughs> so, like, all this thing that I said I would do, it happened. Um, but, you know, it. I think the actual living in New York, the quality of life there kind of sucks. Yeah, and I 100%. personally think it's more enjoyable as a visitor or a tourist. Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely like feel like I'm I'm getting towards the end of my New York journey. Um I feel like I'm either going to need to start making a lot more money in the next few years or I just need to leave cuz like I just don't want to deal with the quality of life and all of the all the bullshit. You know, it's like my uh Jericho, my friend who was also a podcast guest on the first ever episode. Uh, he says, New York is a rich man's game or a young man's game, and I am neither. That's so funny and so true. Yeah. Yeah, I'm definitely getting to that age where it's like, I don't drink anymore, you know? Like, why do I need bars that are open till 4 a.m.? I used to love that. Now I'm just like, oh, I don't even want to be at a bar at, like, 10 p.m. <laughs> oh, I can't even imagine because I've been sober, as you know, for almost four years now. And I don't, I don't know how... It's not that I would sit in there and, like, start fiending. It's like I would sit in there and go, this is a complete waste of my time. <laughs> yeah, why am I what is What purpose is this serving? Other than making the bartender and his boss money or their boss. And, like, loud. 
I know we're musicians, yeah. but I don't actually like to experience loud, like recreationally anymore. Uh, definitely. Man, we, we sound like just like angry old people, which, <laughs> which we kind of are in some ways. But I want to, let's, let's, before we get too caught up in the, in that, let's take it back a bit. So, like, you said you had this Ramones poster hanging over your bed yeah. for years as a kid. And, like, that, that is just like paints such a picture for me of, of you in some ways. And I want to know, like, where did that start? Where did your relationship with, like, I didn't hear about the Ramones until I got into punk rock in, like, seventh or eighth grade. So is that, when were you kind of introduced to? to I was like 10. Okay. And um, was this, like, who introduced you to it? Tell me a little bit about how you got into punk rock. Okay. Well, I have to go through kind of a bit of a story, if you're okay with it. Um, oh, this so, is what podcasting is for. Yes. Just bear in mind. Um and now I imagine a literal bear standing there, sticking uh, <laughs> his head at me. Um, so I grew up in a non-musical family, and that surprises people a lot. Uh, mm-hmm. My parents aren't musical. My brother's not musical. My sister's not musical. But my my relatives and my extended family are. But I didn't see them very often growing up because they live in Texas. Um, gotcha. And so my mom and my dad didn't listen to things I would say are music that tends to spark an awakening. You know, mm-hmm. my dad listens to a lot of the Eagles and Jimmy Buffett, and my mom listens to a lot of Christian music and some pop hits. Gotcha, yeah. And they love so the, the Rolling Stones. The Rolling Stones were our house band, okay. the Rolling Stones. So okay, there was that. Funny. But, like, you know, there wasn't music playing at my house all the time mm-hmm. growing up. There wasn't. You know, it wasn't that kind of space, and my brother listened to a lot of, like, hardcore hip-hop and, like, what I would consider the incel genre of hip-hop. Oh, no. <laughs> like, it's the kind that makes parents worry. <laughs> like, should, oh, no. Get him help? <laughs> um, but, yeah, there was like, a lot of inspiration around in that way, but I always loved singing in my little baby years and I was in choir for six years and I was in vocal lessons from six years old and did musical theater and plays and you know the whole thing mm-hmm. and talent shows and, co- and county fairs and I think punk rock started for me in sixth grade I think part of it was like I had already been feeling really different um mm-hmm. and like of course all kids feel different but like literally like I didn't want to do kid activities for instance, my parents put me in Girl Scouts. I swindled Serena Garaduzzi into doing all my Girl Scout projects. I ate the cookies instead of selling them. And Izzy Bronstein got in trouble for speaking at Girl Scout camp because of me. <laughs> Granted, I just wanted to play Truth or Dare. Didn't force her hand. But it didn't work out well for her. <laughs> and so I just didn't, I wasn't a super kid kid. And I'd uh-huh. say that's where it began. With like just a feeling of otherness, uh, not being able to relate to my peers, not being able to reach other children and what they wanted to do with their time, you know? Yeah, definitely. Uh, wanting to spend time with adults all the time, wanting to sit at the adults' table at a very young age. Um, you know, being upset. What do you think that was? Or, like, so was no, it? I think that's where I was born. 
Okay, and was it, I mean, you wanted to be at the adult table because you didn't want to feel inferior, or was it more of like, it was more interesting? Yeah, like I literally just couldn't hang with kids my age. I couldn't hang with okay. what they were talking about. I couldn't relate. And my parents are very um, wacky and liberal, so in general, so it wasn't like they were mad at me about it. Um, mm -hmm. But like in, when I was nine, I told them I was going to run away and join the Moulin Rouge. And then I changed my mind the next day and said I was going to become a poet who lived above the Moulin Rouge. Okay. Um, and my parents were like, cool, let us know what you feel tomorrow. <laughs> every day. Um, but so I felt the other already, and I think punk rock really spoke to an ability to represent my feeling of otherness aesthetically. Like the clothes uh -huh. brought me in before the almost. Like I think I started okay. with Green Day. But I might have started with Blood Zeppelin, which isn't even punk, but I think that was the first time I heard, you know, I think it set me off on a journey. And, like, totally. I did Good Charlotte, I did Simple Plan, I did, uh, like, all of the early 2000s commercial punk rock. Like, I listened to it all. Totally, and that that gets that's like the entry level. That was like my my first intro. I remember being really into like some forty one early on before yeah. they were like they had like really blown up, and then uh, and then I remember being like not really into pop punk anymore. Like a year later, when they blew up, and like everyone else starts getting into pop punk, but I'm starting to like listen to hot water music and modest mouse and stuff like that. And so then you're even totally. feeling other. Even though people, and it's like, I guess I was a hipster in seventh grade. I guess that's the long story. Oh, the I long believe that's about you. <laughs> and I was like, a, so I became a goth and became obsessed oh. with my Hot Topic goth, period. So I had Emily the Strange Everything. I spent my evenings with one candle burning, painting my nails black, and like reading Edgar Allan Poe. And I was like 12 or 11. Oh, wow. And like, that's, uh, my parents were pretty excited. I'm like an intense 11-year-old. Oh, I was, like, the most intense 11-year-old um, you could possibly imagine. Uh, but, yeah, you, I mean, I think the, that... Or sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, I, I think wanna... that, like, honestly, that attraction to, I guess, like, an alternative lifestyle was very rooted in the fact that I already felt like I was in one, you know? Yeah, okay, that definitely makes sense. Um, and, and so at what point did this turn into... Um, a desire to like want to start writing and creating music. Around the same time, my brother got me a guitar for my either my 11th birthday or my 12th birthday, and okay. uh, I was, you know, I started writing songs and you know knew a couple chords and started guitar lessons. Um, and then, you know, I was just started writing songs. I quit choir around that time, so I'd already been in choir for five or six years at that point. So like since I was five or six. And I'd mm -hmm. already been in vocal lessons for a while, too, and musicals, and, like, county fair performances and talent shows. So I stopped doing all that and focused on songwriting at the ripe old age of, like, 12. Because <laughs> wow. I was like, I don't like this. <laughs> I don't like, I love music. I don't know if I like the avenue that is for kids. Totally. Yeah, and that, that's, like, an interesting thing about, um, like, I kind of had a, not a similar experience, but, like, uh, 
I watched my sisters kind of do that where, where like they did vocal lessons and then they joined like a little singing like group and uh, they go do these like performances and stuff like that. And I'm sitting there thinking like, yeah, I want to play music, but that I don't want to do that. Like, that's not it. You know what I mean? Like, and it was, uh, I was very much yeah. like, no, I'm not, I'm not doing that. And I, I kind of wish I had explored musical theater a little bit more just because now I'm like, oh, it would have been nice to have like a little bit more of an appreciation for that early on. Mm-hmm. It took, it wasn't until later on that I kind of started appreciating that. But, um, but yeah, it was, it was like really weird. I didn't know how, like how else you got into music. Like I secretly wanted to be a musician since the time, like I heard Led Zeppelin, but I didn't know how to tell that to people. Cause I, and I also didn't know a route until I discovered like punk rock and DIY shows. And that just like blew up like a huge world to me, you know, and now here 25 years later or whatever, I'm like, <laughs> you know, it's like, that's my whole life essentially. So um, you start writing songs at like 12 years old, what is the, how does that evolve yeah. into, like, performing and things like that? Well, I was already performing for about six. I started at six. Like, I was really young. Um, and, like, my parents were – put me in acting classes, and I did some, like – I did some acting stuff, and I had, like, my picture in a couple of books for, like, casting. Because my parents were just trying to find what worked for me. You know, my brother was in baseball for mm-hmm. – his little kid experience and they needed something. They just wanted to touch something. Yeah. That makes it sense. took me a while. You know, they just put me in other extracurriculars and they all went the way of the Girl Scouts of like me obviously not being the right fit. Uh-huh. You know? I'm, um, I'm, I'm picturing like a Wes Anderson style montage <laughs> of a young cat Hamilton. Yes. That's you know, like a young Margot Tenenbaum <laughs> trying all these yeah, things out totally and just it. not working. <laughs> I love I, it. They put me in um, dance and, like, ballet when I was a little girl, and I kicked a girl during, in a shin during recital. Oh, my God. And I don't remember why. <laughs> um, so I obviously maybe had a temper or, like, I was just not happy being in, like, I truly felt like I was already 30 and, like, having to pretend to be a child because everyone needed me to be a child. Um, That's really interesting. Uh, No, totally. That that makes a lot of sense. And I I definitely can relate to that on some level. Um, But but it sounds like it was much more of an alien, alienating, like, thing for you in a way. Or, or like, you felt very – it was, like, consistently kind of you felt – out of place or you know i have like a pocket of friends and and you know i played sports and stuff like that because that's what you did but it just seems like you 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 definitely struggled to find your thing oh yeah and it was really hard because i would go i would meet all these adults like in my parents world and like we lived in a celebrity town so i would meet celebrity adults and i would ask them all okay. these questions and we'd sit together and i'm like seven wanting to have a connection not like gross, but like wanting to make a friend who I could talk about life with because mm-hmm. my peers, I can relate to them, you know? Um, Definitely. So like my mom tells me this funny story, like tells this funny story all the time of how, like I used to go to the food court where George Lucas would eat his lunch and I would eat my lunch there with my mom and I would just sit there and ask him all these things about like how he got started in cinema and like, and I was like eight, and my mom was like, "I'm so sorry." She's just very curious. Like, <laughs> ultimately, I felt like I was 
drowning because, like, my peers just were children, and I wasn't the child internally somehow. Mm-hmm. I'm more of a child now than I was then, if that makes any sense. Yeah, that does make sense. Um, I, I find it, I find it uh, you know, really interesting. You know, correct me if I'm wrong, but, like, for me, a lot of my music does come from, historically, it comes from, like, this kind of solitary place of me being in my bedroom alone or, like, on the road alone, just, like, me being very alone and writing. Um, and it, totally. And it comes from a long, a lot of time spent in my 20s, just, like, anxious and, like, just not doing a whole lot or, and I don't know, um... And so it's, it's interesting. You just got like a much younger start on that than uh, than it sounds like a lot of us do. It's weird because like my parents were so supportive, and I'm gra- I'm very grateful to them. Um, because mm-hmm. they talk about it now, like how weird of a kid I was. We were all weird. All three kids were fucking weird. Like <laughs> <laughs> they were. We were. We were a handful because we just weren't. We were like left of center. You know, mm-hmm. and so all the things parents normally do to manage parenting, they couldn't do, you know? Yeah. Like, and I think that was really hard for them because, like, there's, like, a parenting 101, you know? You, like, put your kid at the Chuck E. Cheese and you get mm-hmm. an hour break. But what happens when your kid doesn't want to be at the Chuck E. Cheese? Like, <laughs> you know, what happens no, when the kid not- doesn't want to do kids? So, yeah, that makes sense. It would be difficult on your parents because, um, I mean, every time you feel like you're forging a new path, uh, it's going to be that much more difficult in a way, or you're having to find a different way. Like I heard on a podcast once a a comedian talk about like the path to getting, to becoming a a successful comedian was like, he said like, there's, there's like a million different ways up the mountain, you know? And like, that can be sometimes what's so frustrating about what we do is like the unknown parts of like, what's my way up the mountain. And I can imagine a similar frustration for your parents in that scenario. Yeah. They were, and my brother got into drugs really young, like 12. Wow. 12 is the shit number in our family. Like, every kid by 12 was a mess. Uh, No knock on my parents' parenting. They were fantastic parents. You know, sometimes you just come out a certain way. My brother is now very, like, a wonderful adult with a great career. My sister's a wonderful adult with a great career, and I'm a wonderful adult, I think. And I think I have a great career. So, like, we all turned out fine. We were just different. And that's hard. Well, and I think, you know, it's tough. Yeah, and I, well, I think at that age, I think back to my time at that age, too, is, like, I was way more influenced by my environment and the, the people I was around day-to-day than I was by my, my family, um, you know? So, like, had those people wanted me to, or, like, you know, had I had the opportunity to get into drugs or whatnot with people like that, you know, I would definitely, uh, it could have been, a, it was a possibility. Absolutely. And I think that the, you know, it's all worth it now. And my parents really, like, they're happy that we turned out the way we did. Um, Mm -hmm. And they didn't want to trade us. It's just there's no parenting book if your kids don't want to be kids, you know? Yeah. And my sister didn't want to be a kid either. So it's just we're all these, like, many adults who want to be a part of the world already, but we don't have any of the skills yet. And, like, we're supposed to be at birthday parties. And, like, I did go to birthday parties, but, like, my, the things I enjoyed at birthday parties weren't what I was there to do. 
<laughs> with smoke, smoking cigars with the dads out back. Yeah, pretty much. I'm just like, <laughs> so give me the cake. I'm going to go find the adults. Here's my cake. I'm going to go eat cake with the adults. And you just let me know when you're picking me up. <laughs> um, so I guess, like, punk rock really did speak to me. And I've had this very strange journey with it. Ultimately, I think that punk rock is about feeling um, 100% yourself, mm-hmm. you know, and that can mean a lot of, with you. yeah, like it's about being 100% you and authentic to whatever you're at instead of what society expects from you, you know, and mm-hmm. it was originally a form of activism, and we forget that with the commercialization of punk rock. We forget that it was activism. We forget that it was a rebellion. We forget that there were real reasons for the music to come up in terms of rebelling against the government. You know, I mean, like, a lot of punk rock and sort of the importance of it came up around the time in which Nixon was our president. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, you know, ignited post-Vietnam where people were angry and felt taken advantage of by their government. Totally. And I yeah, and then Ronald, that, Ronald Reagan came around, and then it got even more intense. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I think that we, you know, at the time I discovered it, the need for the activism aspect had changed. Mm-hmm. But the part that appealed to me of being yourself in the face of whatever society is putting you in really related. And then finding no. Kurt Cobain changed everything. Not finding <laughs> Kurt Cobain changed my life. It changed my whole life. Uh-huh. Like, tell Kurt me, Cobain is like, it was my life. Like, it just, you know, like how people say you have a baby and your world changes. I've never had a baby, but I can liken that feeling to the day I first heard Nirvana. Interesting. The first time I ever heard his voice. I can liken that to the feeling of, like, giving birth. <laughs> like, where I was just like, oh, this is who this is who I am, which is really yeah. upsetting when you think all of his mental health issues. Um, well, I mean, I think it's also that one. much more powerful because of his mental health issues. You know, some of the things he was saying in the 90s about, like, um, you know, the terminology wasn't all great, but like he, he was so, he was very accepting and very open-minded about all types of people, the LGBTQ life community like and in the early 90s that was like nobody was like that you know um so even with his mental health issues and his drug issues which i think is just essentially another mental health issue um like he he was still like that's what i hate about our society in a lot of ways and i'm gonna probably go on a tirade but like like he was he was a much better like if my when I was growing up, if I idolized Kurt Cobain outwardly, my mom would have hated it because he was a drug addict and he killed himself and he you know and like and all these things like she my mom would have hated it. She would have much preferred me idolize um, I don't know some some someone else who like like a senator Bob who ends Seeger. up. I mean I love, I love Bob Seger, but uh, but like you know he, he was. I mean, he had mental health issues, but he was, like, a much better person than a lot of the people that I was, like, going to church with and supposed to look up to then, you know what I mean? I, me now, think that he's a way better person because of how accepting he was, you know? And so it's it's just really interesting. And then what you said about um, punk rock being, like, 100% you being, like, comfortable with who you are, I, I love that. It made me think of, like, how... 
American libertarians are like, oh, it's all about individual liberty and blah, blah, blah. But then they somehow get, I mean, early libertarianism is pretty much like anarchy. Like that's what it's supposed to be. But then American libertarianism is like this whole right-wing offshoot. But anyways, long story short, they these guys that are like so into like individual liberty and, and like this whole thing, they get hoodwinked by big corporations and fascists to like become just like cogs in their machine whereas like punk rockers are doing exactly that and then i don't know it's sorry i don't know if i'm making any sense but <laughs> no i mean i and i think the thing is like what attracted me to punk rock was the feeling not the context mm-hmm. so punk rock is anything because it's a feeling not a con it's not a it's a genre but it's really a feeling kurt cobain was punk rock but like so was ray charles and so, you know what I mean? And so is Grimes. And so is anyone who is embodying who they feel like they are in the face of a society that is maybe telling them otherwise, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. And when we talk about selling out, I've always felt like selling out, the actual feeling of selling, like the actual idea of selling out is really just someone deciding to be what other people need them to be or want them to be instead of being who they are. That's selling out. So like, I mean, if, I don't sorry, go ahead. consider someone who makes pop music to be a sellout because if that's who they are, then they're actually being punk rock. Like, I consider Ariana Grande to be punk rock in a sense, you know? Mm-hmm. If she started doing punk rock music because maybe it was trendy, then she's a sellout. It's all about, yeah. like, who you, you be beautiful. No, totally. I, uh, I feel that way. I, I agree with you. And I, I once read in a cracked article that rock and roll is 100% about not giving a fuck. And, uh, like, I think you're in some way saying punk rock, on the other hand, is about 100% being like, this is who I am, and if you don't like that, fuck you. Yeah, like, this... To me, that's what attracted me because I, when I heard Kurt Cobain for the first time, when I heard his voice, I heard this like refusal to not be him, not be who he was. Like this refusal to sing in a way that would maybe make him more money or this refusal to exist in a way that wasn't who he was. And like there's lots of stories, you know, people think that Kurt Cobain hated fame, but he actually did want the radio station and Nirvana was not even originally it didn't organically form as a band as much of a as a backing band for Kurt Cobain and then like turned into a band you know so there's a lot of stuff where people I feel like misrepresent him but the most important part in what I heard in his voice was all of that is him you know him sending tapes to radio stations doesn't make him less punk rock because that's what he wanted to do and that's the punk rock in it that makes sense. Yeah, I, I I vibe with that. You know, if you want to do car commercials, like then, and that feels authentic to you, and how you see yourself, then you have to do car commercials. You have to do that a hundred percent. You know, totally. And like I've felt many times in my life, like I remember I had a job a job in New York that I took in order to be able to contribute more money to my um, my previous band, Manic Pixie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I took it purely as a financial move, mm-hmm. um, and it was a nine to five with mm-hmm. benefits. And like for a nine to five, it was pretty chill, you know. And I spent uh-huh. every single day dying a little bit more, and I quit after a year. 
Um, I was literally dying yeah. inside. Because yeah. even though from an outsider's perspective, maybe I had a great opportunity, a great situation. You know, I toured a couple times while I had that job. Obviously not for very long, like a week or two. But like, I went south by southwest. There was no, on the outside, there was nothing wrong with it. But on the inside, it didn't feel like who I was. So I spent the whole time dying little by little. Uh-huh. And that, uh, so um, I didn't go into space. Oh, sorry, continue. No, no, I mean, I keep going. I want to, like, I kind of want to connect how you got, because we were talking about um, when you started writing songs and then how you got into punk rock through Kurt Cobain and what, um, you know, what punk rock is and what it means to you and, and, can you tell me a little bit about how, like, from you first starting writing songs, started turning into, uh, like, when you started your first band, or, you know, tell me a little bit about more, like, through through high school and college. And it was sort of um, like an animal collective arcade fire indie band. Mm -hmm. um, and I felt really other in it because I knew that they were, this is sounds This sounds really ego, but like it was incredibly true. I knew that the only reason I was there was because I could sing and that no one mm -hmm. wanted to actually hang out with me. And that, that was pretty, rough. you know, because you know, mm -hmm. you're, you've been in band environments. Like a lot of it is a camaraderie and a connection and you sort of yeah. form a beautiful bond. And I felt other again, you know? Because I was there, they would hang out without me. I was literally there to be a great singer, which is awesome, but, like, pay me then. You know? <laughs> um, that's all I'm there for. Um, but so then the next band was called um, was called the Griffin Hart Fan Club, and it was a duo with me and my friend. And we got mm -hmm. really into writing together, and we had excellent writing chemistry. And we were playing shows in my hometown, and, you know, I was, like, 16 or something. And then mm -hmm. I had one called, uh, what was my next band called? Oh, gosh, what was it called? I'm going to, like, kick myself for not remembering because it was by far the best band I was in in high school in terms of the experience of it. Mm -hmm. um, There's Pitches and People, Griffin Art Fan Club, and, oh, Sir Francis Shake. That's what it was called. Oh, nice. Because um, we, our high school is on Sir Francis Drake Boulevard, so we called ourselves Sir Francis Shake. And it was, again, sort of a cutesy indie band. Mm -hmm. Um and we played at restaurants around my town. And I really loved gigging from a young age. And then during that time of, like, Pitches of People, Griffin Art Fan Club, Sir Francis Shake, I was also a solo artist playing songs at coffee shops in my hometown. And I spent quite okay. a bit of time with adults. And I have lots of personal stories that aren't so great about that. But it was, like, a natural progression for me to gravitate towards adult musicians in my town uh -huh. who were doing music. Definitely. Um, that makes so sense. Did you... Do you meet any sort of mentors or anyone who, who yeah. taught you anything um, that so you, you still keep in mind now from an early early age? Absolutely. So I have a mentor. His name is Tom Holmes, who I grew up with, and he and I still mm -hmm. play together when I'm home. And cool. he was by far, like, what taught me the most. And he was a very healthy mentor figure, which I had very unhealthy mentor figures other than mm -hmm. him. So I cite my learning experience from those is what not to do, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, Definitely. Yeah, that's, I mean, life is learning what to and what not to do. And you learn from both. You learn from the people who exactly. fucked it up and the people who did it right. Um, Tom is one of my dear friends. He's been an incredible mentor to me, and he still is. And he really saw, uh, so I sang in church. I was in church. Um, uh -huh. And I had, like, a crisis of faith when I became a goth and decided that I wasn't a Christian. But... I did sing in church, and I actually recorded my first ever album, which was somewhere at seven, 
I sang on Kids Rock, Jesus Rules. Um, oh, wow. And That's it was amazing. a Christian infomercial album, like one of those late night. Yeah. You still get you still get royalties from that album? Oh, I don't get shit. I didn't even get paid. I'm just, uh, I'm just joking. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. But I wish. Uh, but my parents have like 100 CDs somewhere of Kids Rock Jesus Rules. Oh, my God. Um, I want one. I don't even know how to play a CD right now, but I want one. <laughs> maybe I'll bring one for you when I see you on tour. <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> I got the solo on Pharaoh Pharaoh. Um, oh, my God. And I was Amazing. seven, seven, like I was seven years old, and it was in a recording studio. This was my first experience. Oh, cool. Uh, and, and I sang in church band. And so, again, I was, like, really attracted to the idea of gigging and recording really early. Um, uh-huh. And, yeah. you know, Christiani- Christianity. Christianity didn't really vibe with me, but I met Tom through Christianity, you know, through the church band. Mm-hmm. And he really helped me because he would get me gigs. We would play in town. You know, he was... I guess it probably looks a little funny for this man, grown man to be performing with, like, an 11-year-old, but I was really, like, he was very ethical and very safe space. Yeah. It wasn't weird at all, but, like, he really saw in me that I was unhappy with the role of being a kid and wanted more yeah. opportunity to be in music. That's, that's so cool. There's, I mean, I, yeah. Those people just are are very important, and I'm so glad to know that they're out there, you know, that are just like, I see this thing and this child, and I want to help nurture it, and not for any sort of, like, bad reasons of my own, but just because I I think I can make this kid's experience on this planet better by doing this. Exactly. I mean, you know, I didn't have experiences with a lot of ethical mentors, but he was one of them, and I will always Mm -hmm. respect him for what he did. That's really cool. He really showed up for me in life, and he still does. He saves my ass all the time, you know, um, when I'm home. And we're still dear friends. So I, I just, it's been a pleasure to know. Um, so he really was there for me. That was my mentor growing up who wasn't, like, a fuckhead. And then I got into Berkeley College of Music in Boston. That was my dream mm-hmm. school. Um, I originally got waitlisted. I feel like that's a pretty important detail. I tell people a lot. I don't like to falsely represent myself as somebody who's had... Like, you know, like I want to fall, I want to accurately represent my life. And people uh-huh. go, wow, you went to Berkeley. I'm like, yes, I did, but I got waitlisted. So let's not, let's not like worship me, okay? Like, I barely got in there, um, but I loved it. I mean, yeah, but you got in, you know. Yeah, I got in, and I was, I was offered other opportunities at other colleges for music and for creative writing. And I was mm-hmm. sort of, have you seen High School Musical? I have not, but I've been to the high school it was filmed at. No way. Holy crap. <laughs> yeah, it was filmed at East, East High School in Salt Lake City. If you're there on tour, it's very easy to find. Maybe I'll go. Um, but so I had sort of a Troy debacle when I was starting to go to college because I was like, creative writing or music, what am I needed to do? Like, what it, what's... Because um, music was my lifelong love, but I was getting better opportunities college-wise in creative writing. Um, I was getting into more programs. So I was torn, you know, singing songs about it. Do I become a creative writer? Do I become a musician? Ah! <laughs> and so I got into Berkeley, I got off the wait list, and that answered my question. Um, but I was, like, weeks away from confirming with Emerson to go to Emerson for creative writing. Oh, really? And my 
I think my life would have been really different, you know? Yeah, totally. Had I gone to ASU instead of the University of Utah, my life would have been very different. I'd probably be a dad and not playing music right now. What was that? Oh, I didn't realize you went to University of Utah. Yeah, that's where that's where I got my film and media arts degree, my bachelor's in fine arts. <laughs> nice. It's been super I'm sure useful. you use it all the time. Yeah, it's been it's been fucking great. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I don't Berkeley feel like I got ripped off at all. Yeah, yeah, you you oh, so Berkeley is for women, it's different than men. So I want to preface mm-hmm. that because if anyone's gonna listen to this and be like, ooh, like it's a woman thing. Because at the time, it was uh, 1 in 30 were a woman. It's changed now. but um, And so I hit, like, a, a really crazy point in my life because, okay, so, like, growing up, I was – the only people who wanted to date me were adult men. <laughs> and so I didn't really have an experience with my peers, like, building those romantic connections mm-hmm. and, like, having normal dating, um, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there were there weren't any like there was one time I went to the movies but like yeah on a date you know but very much so like when you're a teenager who gets dated by old men you don't end up going to the movies very often um, and so when I got to college I was really overwhelmed by the male attention. Mm-hmm. Um, granted, I had gone to the summer camp twice for the for the school, but that had considerably more women. Gotcha. And so, like, when you're the only woman in a class, like, it, and men are, like, 18 or 19, it sort of feels oh, like you're dangling on a stick over, like, a lion pit. Oh, my God. I'm, yeah, I mean, I feel like I was thinking of me at 18 or 19, and I don't think I was, like, bad, but still, I, it, yeah, I mean, that, that, that sucks. And they're music nerds, you know? Yeah, I mean, and like music having ends. all these complex feelings. So yeah, it was yeah. really overwhelmed by the male attention. It was super distracting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was overwhelmed by the competition element because I'd done the summer camps, but the actually going to school for it, it was incredibly competitive. Like when you get there, they assign you a number one through eight. I don't know if they do this anymore, but they used to. And the number you had equated to how good you were, essentially. And the number also equated to, like, what kinds of classes you could take. Uh-huh. And so, like, ensembles, which are, like, bands that are also classes, like, you couldn't get into certain ensembles. You'd have to audition for them if you were a one or a two. And okay. I'm proud to say I graduated a two. So I was a one for most of my time there, and you know what? I'm proud of it. I uh-huh. knew a guy who was an eight, and he was a fucking asshole. <laughs> yeah, I mean, All I was... let's talk about eight. I did was talk about what? How he was an eight. Oh, I mean. That's the top number you can have. Yeah, that's uh, that sounds. That's, I mean, that sounds really counterproductive. But I, I also don't know a whole lot about the whole school thing. Um, I you mean, know, I, I, I don't. Oh, sorry, you. I was just gonna say I don't. I don't know. It just seems like turning that into a competition is like. Uh, I would just be like, I'd just like roll my eyes at it. I'd probably be a one the whole time, just out of defiance. You know, you'd think of that, but the competition does really get in your head. You know, I will say the entire environment was incredibly competitive. Um, and I was, so your vocal classes, because I got in as a singer, are all girls, because the only girls at the school were in voice. Um, okay. And so then you're in competition with each other, because you're already 
there's only so many girls, and then you're all in a class together being compared as singers. Um, sounds really toxic to me, Kat. <laughs> this all sounds yeah. very toxic. Yeah, and you paid for that. Well, the Berkeley School of uh, Music memes on band memes, 666 on Instagram, are, like, sometimes my favorite ones. I don't know anything wait, about I Berkeley School of Music. Oh, you don't follow band memes? No! I'm going to send you a link. It's the best thing ever. It's amazing. Anyone listening, if you don't follow it, it's, yeah, it's the best. Uh, but, yeah, they, they have, like, these Berkeley School of Music memes every once in a while, and I think they're hilarious, but I don't know anything about it. And now hearing how toxic it sounds, I'm like, oh, it, these, those memes make a lot more sense. Yeah, it was pretty toxic, and they set up a toxic environment. They had competitions at the school in which you had audition for. Um, and again, you had ratings, so you couldn't get into certain classes with your rating without auditioning. Um, and so I, <laughs> in the very me-style fashion, began my Berkeley career rebelling against the very thing I dreamt of doing my whole life. Um, so I found Poetry Slam through the school slam club, fell in love with it, and ended up on the Poetry Slam team for two years. And I um and I performed as a a slam poet in Boston for those two years. Okay, um, I that's that's very interesting. I've watched. I've got some friends that are very were very into slam poetry, and um, it's a really interesting art form. I I always really enjoy them the shows, but I'm always just sitting there watching. Like I don't think I would ever be. I would ever want to do this. <laughs> so tell me, you it know, like, it, I, I like hiding behind my guitar. So, yeah. you know, like what, um, but tell me, what did you learn from the time you spent doing slam poetry? I, I'd oh, be everything. really interested in how it uh, affected your, the way you perform, your songwriting. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about how it informed that? Oh, it, it literally like, it taught me more than any of my music education did. Sorry, Berkeley. You know? Um, I need to apologize. They have like $50,000 of your money. Yeah, um, <laughs> more than that, but yes. Um, okay, well, that's how I feel towards the University of Utah. I'm like, fuck you. But anyway, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> you know, famous, most famous music school in the country didn't really... It made a lot of connections for me that I'm incredibly grateful for. Like, the Expedia mm -hmm. commercial I just did was through a Berkeley connection. Oh, um, nice. So, like, no regrets. But I learned more from Poetry Slam. Um, one of the main – you become an incredibly fast memorizer through that art form. You become an incredibly controlled performer. Um, Explain more you know, about that. Oh, yeah, totally. Like, your body becomes so much more of an instrument to you through that art form. Mm -hmm. Because you have to plan okay. everything ahead of time. Almost you like plan a all your movements. Yeah, almost like a composer, oh. almost. Okay. Like, this oh, one to five, yeah, this one to three minute performance becomes a composition. Mm -hmm. Because everything you do in it, even tapping your foot, affects the performance. Um, and so you become very organized with that. Um, your eye contact becomes, people often tell me I have too much eye contact. Uh-huh. And also, like, I have a really hard time um, understanding someone if they don't make eye contact with me. Gotcha. Like, I can't really process a conflict without it. Um, 
it's so much of a part of connection for me. And poetry is why I'm really ingrained that in me, for the good, better for worse. Like, I became an eye contact person. It also, like, you plan dynamics a lot. So I think it really helps with music because you become somebody who's very aware of your own ability to reduce and expand volume in order to tell a story. Mm-hmm. And storytelling in general becomes very important. What distracts the story? What serves the story? You know, what are you doing create more of an atmosphere for your story in order for the audience to come into the story with you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, um, that's, and I uh, keep that with music. Yeah, that sounds very useful. I, uh, Man, I, that's, I love those filters that you just mentioned that you just that you have to run these things through. I'm getting better at that. But for the longest time, it just felt like I, songwriting for me was just like, oh, I just kind of wrote whatever came to me and then, like, played it for a couple friends. And if they seemed, like, excited about it, I'm like, oh, that's a pretty good song. So then I start playing it at shows. But if they didn't really respond to it, I'm like, okay, maybe I'm going to work on that one a little more. But that's a, you know, I, I very rarely consider the audience when I'm writing. And I think that's definitely like a weakness of mine. Um, and so that, that's interesting that, that that's uh, something that slam poetry taught you. Oh, it really did. I mean, honestly, slam poetry taught me so much. And I still have amazing friends I'm there. And the ultimate reason why I quit slam poetry is because you can't really have a career in, in it unless you're the best. Mm-hmm. And I have self-awareness, honestly, from the things slam poetry taught me to know that I would never be the best. It would never actually be enough. And it had nothing to do with how hard it worked. Um, um, what did it have to do with so, You know, I think it has some natural ability stuff, overall presence stuff, and your timing. It's really about timing. And you can work on that a lot, but, like, you know, think of a great comedian. They work super hard. So there are comedians out there, no matter how hard they work, that don't have the inherent time. Mm-hmm. I think for a lot of comedians, at least that I, I've spoken to, I am not a comedian, so I do not know, but uh, it comes down to, for a lot of them, they say, well, you've got to put in the time, you know, to, to develop that stuff and to develop your voice. And, uh, and, and, you know, so, so it's interesting to me that you, you said like for slam poetry, it's, it's gotta be kind of more natural gifts. And that's, I think maybe it's because like, there's, there's a, on the planet, there's way more people who are professional comedians than there are professional slam poets. You know, they're very like few. And so I got to meet the top of the echelon mm-hmm. and recognize while I'm talented, I wasn't talented in the way I would need to be, nor did my heart really love it in the way I would need to be, because it is one of the hardest things in the world, I think, is to do slam poetry. Um, mm-hmm. It's like being a comedian, but getting no relief ever. Oh, yeah, um, that, sounds, that sounds exhausting. And I did comedic slam poetry. A lot of my stuff was comedic. But, again, it's not the same kind of audience. Um, your timing is really different in order to achieve the goal. And you have judges that are scoring you. Mm-hmm. Very um, and you are thinking of the other performers and how you can counter what they do. So you'll have, like, five poems in pocket for the night, which means ready to go. And then you watch the performer before you, and have to be really careful that your performance isn't adversely affected by what they just did. Let's say they had a traumatic poem that made the whole audience cry. 
you have to strategically decide how am I going to respond in a way to like help this like get this audience on my side because you could be disrespectful or you could turn the audience off because your job is to manipulate their emotions if the person before you did something and you respond with the wrong poem. So you don't just have one poem you're prepared. You have anywhere from five to ten before you um, that, that's That's interesting. I've approached um, writers in the round shows that way where it's like I've got a list of ten or so songs that I've been working on in my head or that I've practiced or whatnot, but it kind of depends on, like, what song the last what last song someone played, you know, um, like what, what the mood was or, um, but I've never had someone sit there and then just like judge it and score it. Well, like after I was done, that sounds, I mean, I don't know. That sounds, I got too much, way too much anxiety for that shit. Yes. It makes you tough as shit though. It does. Um, but you know, I've had people talk to me in great detail about how I give off, a different energy and I cite that towards slam poetry um, mm -hmm. because slam works it just helped me work on myself and know myself differently and the ability to like have all these to, like I use this as a songwriter all the time the ability to understand your audience understand why what man, emotions you want to manipulate mm -hmm. and I mean man, I don't say manipulate in a negative way but like that's your job Yeah, totally. um, and like in slam poetry, like, okay, I was a comedy poet primarily, but I did have some trauma poetry, because you have to, and mm -hmm. I had some group pieces. And if someone came up and did a comedic poem, and I could hear in their poem and in the audience reaction that my funniest poem wouldn't be funny enough, I would switch to trauma. And that was a skill you learned from slam poetry. You have to know and love your competitor. Uh-huh. That's, uh... And, like... Really cool. It's uh, sounds like a really cool experience to have, have gotten to to you know these like these skipping stones that you've been taking to get to where you are now, and I see you now as this fully formed. Um, well, not fully formed because we're always growing or whatnot, but I just see you now as like you say you you love L.A. and that it, it seems like things are going very well for you, and and I just uh, I don't know, I'm just so happy for you because I. I it, was, it, doesn't, it doesn't seem like it's been an easy path by any means, and nobody's path is easy. I mean, maybe not nobody, but, you know, like, but it's just, I don't know. I'm just very happy for you because I'm very happy that it's uh, how it has. Thank you. I mean, it's been a lot of hard work, but, like, again, Poetry Slam actually really helped me because I, I discovered a lot about hard work. Mm -hmm. Um and then after, so I retired from my slam career two years in, um, uh -huh. after living in Europe for a while. Um, where where in Europe? That, what, tell me a little bit more about Europe, if you don't mind. Please finish the thought on slam poetry if you want, but then we can talk a little bit about your time in Europe. Sure, yeah. So I I realized, if, I just finished, with, finished the thought, I realized in Europe that slam poetry would take a level of dedication and almost close me off to experiences, and I wasn't ready for those to be closed. And I also realized I still wanted to start a punk band. Like, that punk rock was still in me. Um, so I was in Europe for, like, six months, um, which is, like, the max for a travel visa. And I had, a, yeah. through my school, I had work abroad programs. So it's different than a study abroad. A work abroad is where you pay, you get an unpaid internship, mm -hmm. um, and you get an experience for what it's like to basically not be in college, be working, but you get to also experience being in Europe. Um, yeah. It's like 
test adulting. You live in an apartment with yeah, other people, totally. go to work. Um, so I worked at a fashion magazine there mm-hmm. um, because I started a record label that my school put me in touch with, but it turned out to just be some guy's house, and he just wanted me to do spreadsheets, and he was kind of weird, so I switched to a fashion magazine. Um, and so when I did the fashion magazine, I did everything from writing to photo shoot and makeup styling to photography. Um, I did basically like all these different jobs and got experience in the various art forms related to entertainment industry. Um, oh, cool. That sounds, that sounds like a great opportunity to like learn, like almost like a, a boot camp for you to get, like to take all these skills to go into like, DIY having a punk band and whatnot. So I've, I know, uh, right? I've had a little bit, but this is this is very cool. So can you tell me specifically, like, um, so you know, did you have? Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. I was just gonna say, did you have like a like a specific project or something that you didn't know anything about going into um, this experience at the the fashion magazine um, that that now is something that you use very regularly in music? Do you have an example of that, like maybe writing press releases or doing photo shoots, like, you know, what that first experience All was of it. Like? <laughs> yeah? I think something I really learned, which was cool, being at photo shoots as a, like, doing styling and mm-hmm. um, running shoots, uh, was that you have to depersonalize yourself from images of yourself. Like, the models I met were really good at depersonalizing themselves from the work. Oh, and interesting. Different I like that so I learned to look yeah. at Do you know when you do a photo shoot and you see yourself back and you're like, oh, I had a pimple, and, like, that was the wrong shirt, and, like, uh-huh. could have used some dry shampoo. You know, like, this inner monologue of looking for the flaws in the photography um, you uh-huh. learn differently on the other side that you're actually looking for the composition, the lighting, the way the colors work, um, and ultimately yeah. the story also. It all comes back to the story. In fashion, it's about selling clothes. So there's yeah. nothing to do with whether yeah. you had a pimple, you know? There's nothing to do with whether your hair looked funny to you. Did your hair look funny to the client? Does it sell well, the brand? Does it sell the idea? Totally. One also, there's the... Uh, um, and uh, not to co-opt this thought, but uh, there's also the whole, like, learning that, you know, this is going to be in a fashion magazine. Like, you like this, you got to appreciate your own authority on a thing just based on where you're at. The opposite of imposter syndrome, where you have to be like, no, I'm an authority on this thing, or I'm the person that, like, who has a better idea of what this photo is supposed to look like than than me who who helped you know what I mean like I'm uh I'm not completing this thought you're doing a great job okay I'm just saying like you know when you're when I do a photo shoot with a photographer usually it's just someone that I whose photos that I like and I just I'm like hey how much is your rate and then I do the styling I if they don't have a location I put that together and blah 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 and so then you look at the photo and you're like oh I had a pimple or blah 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 but it's really like no, who had a better idea of how to put this all together than me when I'm the one that put hours into thinking about it? They just showed up and took photos. And yeah, obviously a photographer has like a set of skills that they, you know, that they've developed over time and it's an art form and I'm not taking anything away from that. But the the big picture thing of how it turns out at the end, it's like, well, you should take, you should take ownership of that because you're the one that put way more thought into how this photo turned out than anybody else that was there, you know, along a lot of times as the, the musician or the artist or the subject. 
Um, exactly. And I actually, and this will go into Manic Pixie, um, mm-hmm. I learned a lot about how aesthetic affects a story. Mm-hmm. Like, aesthetic is a huge part of a story. And now that I'm in, I do, I write press releases and bios for people. I think about that all the time. How someone uh-huh. looks, not just, not just whether they're pretty or not, but how mm-hmm. someone dresses, the composition of everything really changes how an audience experiences the music, the story, everything. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's it. That's, that's, uh, that's such a useful piece of advice for so much of what we do, I feel like, or like a useful thing to know. And I, something that I've noticed since the day I met you that you do very well. And it makes sense that you write press releases and that this is something that you actually do for a living because you're good at it. But um, is <laughs> is looking not like like a lot of my early music specifically was like made as a form of therapy and is really personal and dealt with some family trauma and things like that. And so then I thought that set up this expectation of me having to write these super personal things or for all of my art to be so personal and so close to me. And as I've gotten older, I've had to learn, like, it's it's about the big picture. It's not about, like, this small thing or it's not what this specific song was about for me. It can be about anything because it's for it's for the audience, it's not for you, you know? There's, like, um, I think it's just such a, a useful thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think Sorry, that, I like, <laughs> no, it's okay. Like, styling a photo shoot. Like, I remember we did one in a, like, a speakeasy tea room in um, Piccadilly Circus for Primark, which is, like, a clothing brand. They styled it. Mm-hmm. It's not a pro- clothing brand, but it's, like, an H&M. They styled it for us. So I picked up all the clothes on the tab of the magazine. I styled it and did makeup myself, um, mm-hmm. along with a couple other interns. And I just learned a lot about, you know, um, ego. Uh-huh. Um, because these people working on it were so good at serving the project and not bringing in, like, how they felt about themselves um, and really telling the story. And what we needed to tell was, like, a cool girl hanging out in Primark clothes in this like speakeasy and we needed her to be aspirational but not overdone and so anything that didn't look aspirational but not overdone had to go otherwise it distracts from the story mm-hmm. and people buy a shirt not really based on the shirt they buy a shirt for what it represents so yeah, if you totally. don't do a good job representing it you can't your it'll impact the clothing company and it impacts your relationship with them because they're using you to sell clothes yeah no, and that's, that's why they loan them one, well, it's so interesting how we like we know that when we're buying the shirt, but when we're selling the shirt, we we make it personal. You know, like um, we make it, or we 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 forget that the relationship is about the story of the shirt, not whether or not you. I, I don't even know, like how whether or not you're dealing with childhood trauma while you design the shirt. <laughs> exactly, it, it's we're so in our emotions as songwriters, we forget about the experience of it all. Um, yeah, and so aesthetically, I learned a lot. Um, and I'm glad I did before I, before Manic Pixie began because that aesthetic really went into my role in that band mm-hmm. and my knowledge of aesthetic, I would say. And did you start that band? Did you start Manic Pixie? Like, I know you guys were in New York for a while. Um, did you start it in New York? Mm-mm. Uh, my last year of college. So we all went to Berkeley. Oh. I mean, the members that I started it with, we all went to Berkeley. 
Gotcha. Um, some of the lineup changed over time, but like, and I knew exactly aesthetically what I wanted to evoke. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, I felt like it was very like important to have an aesthetic, at least for myself, because I'm the lead singer, and that usually oh. the person people watch. Um, and so I'm selling the music to people. Um, I would also hang out at merch, and the merch was like I designed a lot of the merch, um, not like final designs, but I was, but I did a lot of the aesthetic around it. Uh-huh. And everything related had color scheme and a vision and what I felt like would sell the music. If that makes sense. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, that's uh, it's. It, it's really interesting, or it's, and I say it's really interesting a lot, and that's would be a good drinking game. People would get wasted. They drank everything. <laughs> so that uh, uh, the um, that sometimes what holds us back as independent artists, uh, you know, because us as songwriters versus us as like the business side of independent artists or the marketing side of it. So much of it can get lost where those um, lines get blurry and like you can lose a lot of traction and a lot of like chutzpah, you know, like in a project, if you like, if you don't put that work into it, you know what I mean? If you don't like, um, or if you aren't able to separate that thing of like, no, this is, this is the vision of what we're going for and whether people like it, it's back to that punk rock thing. It's like, and there's people out there that will like it for what it is and we're going to sell it to those people and everyone else fuck you but like also yeah don't take it don't take it personally when those people don't like it because it's not for them you know and i used i get sometimes or used to get so lost in like you know what if well will my mom like this song it's like no offense mom i love you but like it's not fucking for her oh i know i got lost in it too and like i really you know i i see aesthetics as an art form and mm-hmm. telling a complete story. So I think that it, there's, like, something very punk wrong about, uh, and I know people maybe disagree with me, but uh, about thinking of yourself as more than the music and creating everything to reflect who you are or who your band is. Mm-hmm. Even if that's, like, you're, like, selling, but, like, you're selling you, not someone you think you should be. And, like, granted, being in a band, like, there's a lot of opinions, and, like, my bandmates had opinions, but, like, I think my strengths in the band, when I think, you know, re- recognize in retrospect besides maybe my singing talents or songwriting talents, you know, like beyond that was that I had a real vision for aesthetics. Yeah. Because that's something I brought to the table with my life experiences. And after living in Europe, I had way more interest in fashion, way more interest in um, how fashion sells a story. Mm-hmm. Um, and like the original so you, idea behind Man Pixie, it was called Sugar Bomb in the beginning, but another band called Sugar Bomb was just too big, and we uh-huh. had to change our name. Um, and the aesthetics behind it all came from this pair of pants I found at the Goodwill. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> before even like starting the band. Uh huh. Um, there's shiny pink pants or magenta pants, and I was like, okay, okay this is gonna be, this is gonna be like. Shuri, like, I thought about Shuri Curry a lot, the singer of the record. I'm like, it's going to be hyper femme, hyper glam. Mm-hmm. This is the color palette, and there's going to be, like, an element of Hot Topic to it, you know? 
um, yeah. like an element of that, like skulls and like goth and um, that commercial side of it, because I wanted it to evoke like a certain era, you know? Yeah, totally. Um, and like my band, my bandmates had such a, like, we all had our roles and we all had our strengths. Like it was a band. It wasn't like the Cat Hamilton show, but like, I think the strength I brought to the table, a lot of it was the, the vision. Mm-hmm. You know, how can this be a full experience and not just a band? Yeah, exactly. I like that a lot. And I, I uh, you know, I did that with all my shit now. <laughs> totally. No, and I, um, I, I think that's such a valuable thing. I went to the David Bowie exhibit at the Brooklyn Museum a few years ago, and that was something that I really took away from it. And I, I decided right then and there I wanted to, like, implement more into my, my career moving forward. Is like he was such a visionary and such a, like, no, I have this vision, and we're going to achieve it. And if you can't do that, I'm sorry. I'm going to find someone who can. And so I'm always, I'm always afraid of hurting people's feelings, or I let people talk me into things, and then I like regret it, or I'm just like, God damn it. And so yeah, you know, in that moment, I was like, I was like, no, fuck that. I'm like, unless it's a collaboration, that's a whole other thing. But you know what I mean, like, and that you know, when you're collaborating, it's about compromise. But still, like. A company has to have a mission statement. A band has to have a vision. I think that's been very, very powerful. So when someone says, like, oh, that's you know, what you brought to the band, that's a big part of it. If you're putting on a show, that's a big part yeah. of it. And, like, luckily for me and my bandmates, um, we're very cool with my vision for the aesthetic. You mm-hmm. know, it wasn't a fight. That's awesome. Um, which I appreciate about you know, they were focused on the music, and I got to, and I was focused on the music too, but I got to also bring that element to it and my experience to it. And again, that's like what you were saying in the beginning of this call. Like, we all have our own way up the mountain. Mm-hmm. And I've had a lot of crazy things happen in life and weird things, and they've all sort of informed how I see the world and how I see music. And I use aesthetics now. Like, I have, you know, you've played with us in Guyville, and Cat Hamilton, myself, I do, I work very hard on making sure now that, like, with Guyville aesthetics, that it's balanced with my own to where I'm not clashing in a sense that we're not representing the same aesthetic. Mm-hmm. And I talk to Emily about that a lot, how important it is, because Emily also has a solo project, to make sure that we're not all representing the same thing. Color yeah, I'm, like, clothes. I'm trying to uh, navigate that right now with, uh, with a new project and, and like how to draw those lines. But also like, I've always just played under my name because of just like, well, I don't, you know what I mean? It was just like, well, it's just easy. And I don't want to come up with like all the good band names are taken, uh, which is not true, but, um, but now trying with but, a new but project. But you don't want to add a bunch of extra vowels. Yeah, no, no, I hate that shit. <laughs> I mean, it works sometimes. But, uh, there's some, or like name name my band after like a sport. You know, hey, there's my new band, golf. Like <laughs> with with two O's and two F's. Yeah. And an exclamation point. Yeah. yeah, instead of two O's it's an infinity sign. Oh my gosh, kill me. Just kill me. <laughs> Throw me under ba- the fire. Your band, your band name's Goof. <laughs> Goof! Uh, <laughs> I I almost like I had a song I was working on years ago that like was I, I forget the line but I know I had like 
a line that was like the going to be the seed to the song I never finished. That was like the title of the song was going to be one word hipster band. Nice. But uh, but anyways, um, <laughs> I don't. I could say, I could talk shit about band names all day long. Uh, I will spare our listeners because that's not going to be anything interesting. <laughs> I'm just. Uh, <laughs> but um, no, I, I um. That's something that that I back to the whole like separating the aesthetic and like the vision for each project. That's something I'm kind of dealing with right now and really trying to make sure I approach it, um, you know, being mindful about those things. Um, can you, you know, tell me tell me something you learned about your time with Manic Pixie or tell me a little bit more about how, you know, like how that, what the story arc of that band was, um, you know, how you left New York City and ended up in L.A. and then we can get to, you know, what's going on now. Well, I can tell you that Manic Pixie, prior to meeting my partner, um, <laughs> was the love of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, it was so much more than a band to me. Um, it was my everything. So it's very, like, it was a huge adjustment to not have my everything <laughs> um, and to figure out what life would be like without it. And, you know, in some ways that's toxic because, like, literally nothing, like, I broke up with people because of, like, things with Manic Pixie. They broke up with romantic partners, you know? Totally. Um, I put everything first. All money I ever made went into it. Um, Everything came first. The jobs I worked determined it. Like, everything. Where Mm -hmm. I lived, everything. So, it's very strange to talk about it because it was, like, unlike other bands I had been in in the past, like, in high school or whatever, and I did some, like, I did a little bit of stuff in, like, people's bands while in college. Nothing major, because I was busy with Slam, but, you know. Um, but I, it was the love of my life prior to my partner now, who is the love of my life, um, who you've met a couple of times. Yes. Hello, Tyler, right? Yeah, Tyler. Hello. Um, Hi, Tyler. <laughs> I don't know if you want me to... Well, I'm in my car right I don't know if you want... I was going to say, I don't know if you want your... No, it's uh, okay. Okay, I was going to say, I can edit that out, but... I don't mean to dox your partner. Yeah, maybe they cut their name out. I don't know. It depends. Okay. But it doesn't matter either way, I don't think. You know, they know that okay. I feel the way I feel and that it's such a part of my life and I talk about it. Um, but so, you know, Manic Pixie was everything to me and it it became my sort of reason for existence in a lot of ways. I don't know how healthy that is, but that's just the honest truth. And so we formed the last year of college. I moved to New York because my drummer moved was moving to New York. Um, because of his girlfriend. And I, my drummer. Yeah, no, but I was sorry. I was I was just making a joke because like the drummer moved to New York because of their girlfriend. So you followed him, like. I, I oh no. A cliche. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, they didn't actually move for a girlfriend. They just had grown up in Long Island. Okay. So comforting. Oh, so yeah, okay. my drum moved to New York. Yeah, so do I. And I wanted, I wanted to continue the band, and I knew we'd have to find other people to play, but at least I'd have my drummer. And so he and I were, I guess, like the founders of the band in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, we were. We were the founders. Of the band. Um, and so we, um, yeah, we moved to New York, and 
you know, after a couple months, hit the ground running with finding new players. And we actually ended up keeping our guitar player, um, and he would commute, but he was the guitar player we had at Berkeley. Um, he stayed in the band, and then we had a rotating bass player situation um, until we found a bass player who our guitar player knew from growing up who had moved to New York. And then he became, like, our permanent bassist for a long time. Um, and we put out our first record, and when we changed our name from Sugar Bomb to Manic Pixie, we called the album Sugar Bomb. Um, and you can listen to that on Spotify if you're curious. Um, and yeah. so, yeah, we did Manic Pixie in New York for two years, and during that time I worked countless jobs, lived in countless apartments. Um, kind of just, it was, like, my band first. So um, the jobs I worked were related to where we were at in the band experience. Were we touring a lot? Then I'd be working jobs I could quit easily. Do we need more money? Mm -hmm. I'd have to pay pay raise and work somewhere where I couldn't take time off, but I would be making more money. You know what I mean? Yeah. Totally. That's uh, awesome. (laughs) It was a lot. Um, Yeah. And in New York, I didn't really do solo stuff. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. I started the solo planning process sort of towards the end of my time in New York, but the solo stuff was always meant to be a side thing. The other people in Manic Pixie were in some other bands on the side. I wanted a side thing, too. Plus, I was really falling in love with country music and wanted to express Uh myself in that genre more. Um, And so, yeah, there were a lot of reasons. So the planning around solo stuff started happening, and then I got an opportunity to spend more time in Philadelphia and fell Mm -hmm. in love with the community aspect of Philly. Yeah. Because I often talk to people in L.A. because they're like, why the fuck would you live in Philly? And I'm like, you have to experience it. I was like, it's all about community. Uh, People often do barter and trade systems. There is a real sense of community-based ethics for good, better and for worse. Like, you know, people in bands help each other. There isn't a competition happening like in New York. And the scene totally. gets it really feels like, like a scene in a community, whereas New York is just like a, it's just a sea of a sea of artists, and Philadelphia is like a music scene. Yeah, it's got a scene, and you're not fighting to have opportunities. You get the opportunities based on the amount of you, yourself that you put into it. You know, mm-hmm. if you want to play with a certain house venue, you keep showing up. And you'll play it. If you want to be a part of it, you show up and you'll be a part of it. New York's not like that. New York is a mm-hmm. city that takes and takes and rarely gives. So Yeah, that's very true. You know, like, you have to be ready in New York to fight tooth and nail for opportunities and get very little in return. And there is no um, community there either. So you're not going to be in this sort of sense of, like, you're not going to be in this place where everybody is showing up and creating connections, and then you get to um, reap benefits from showing up. Mm-hmm. And Philly, on the other hand, really does that, which I fell in love with. So I moved to Philly, and the band did sort of a half New York, half Philly setup. Okay. Um, Which is definitely doable for people listening that don't know. Like you can't, you could get to Philly theoretically in an hour and a half because it's like what eighty miles away, but uh, yeah. maybe ninety. I don't know. Uh, but you know, it, it might also take two or four hours depending on traffic. <laughs> yeah, it was workable. It was doable, and I paid less in rent, and I was um, 
more able to facilitate, like, just so there's a lot of flexibility on my end. Uh Um, And I find that in bands, like, it only works if a certain amount of people are flexible. Mm Mm-hmm. Because they're compromising people. Being flexible. Yeah, people's lives need to be pretty malleable to make it work. Exactly. You have to be malleable, and you have to have the right... There's this, like, thing with it where you really have to be, like... There has to be at least one person who is willing to drop their shit at a moment's notice. And it functioned best when I was this person, you know? Um, So, yeah, Manic Pixie was together for about five years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a year in Boston, two years in New York, three years in Philadelphia. Um, And then we broke up because I was a dumbass. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah, it was my fault. Um, you know, I can laugh about it now because sometimes, like, when you do dumb shit in your life, you just have to laugh about it. You know, it doesn't take away yeah. the any hurt feelings, but it it is what it, you know, you can't go back in time. So you, I laugh about it and I learn. Well, um, yeah, and I think um, going back on what is similar to what we were talking about with traffic of you, you. You know, the more you resist it or the more you fight it or the more you beat yourself up over some mistakes that you've made, the more suffering you're gonna you're causing yourself. And at a certain point, you can just choose to, you know, learn from it and laugh about it and, and not let, let those past mistakes continue to haunt you and cause you to suffer. Yeah, and I've learned so much from that experience. I really mm-hmm. did. Uh, you know, it taught me some really important life lessons uh, about communication. Can you, yeah, can you name, yeah. name a, a few of those? Of course. So I started getting um, really into alcohol. Um, mm-hmm. And it started affecting my ability to be a healthy bandmate. Um, uh-huh. And I had never really struggled with alcohol in that way before. But I was under, I was dealing with a lot of shit. And I started turning to alcohol for comfort instead of just, like, enjoying a fun social experience with alcohol involved. I was drinking by myself. You know, the classic. Drinking by yourself. Like, um, getting hammered by yourself. Yeah, I, uh, (laughs) no, I'm, I, I can relate with your, uh, was you're drinking by yourself because I always pictured that as being like alone in your bedroom drinking by yourself or alone at home but it can also be going to the bar where you're not there meeting anyone and you're just sitting at the bar and yeah you're hanging out with the bartender who you know because you're there four nights a week and you're getting plowed but like you're you're still drinking alone, dude. Like just because you're at a bar, you're still drinking alone. I thought I was like, oh, it's healthy, it's social, but it's like, no, you're not there with friends. You're getting drunk with the bartender. Exactly, and they're like getting paid essentially to get to have to be with you. You know? Yeah. So totally. well, then they they buy you some drinks, so you tip them way more than you would have spent on the drinks anyways, which is fine because I'd rather give them the money than their boss, but. Anyways, it's just, like, interesting for, like, anyone listening that's, like, it's, like, 
I'm not here. I'm not the beer or the alcohol police, but I, being someone who struggled with that as well, it's like, yeah, sometimes drinking alone can look like being at a crowded bar, but just by yourself, uh, you know, and I didn't yeah. really realize that. But sorry. Uh, I, I, no, you're okay. I and I like, I'm pretty open story. about it because I, I really did. Like I wasn't communicating my mental health problems that were coming up and the drinking and mm-hmm. I wasn't making I was worried about being, about letting people down. And so mm-hmm. I sort of spiraled into addiction and kept it to myself and made a lot of bad choices. And, you know, I learned a valuable lesson about how, like, in life, like, sometimes you have to make a hard choice in the moment for things to be better in the future. Mm-hmm. And, like, what I would have needed at the time was to take time off. And I wasn't ready, nor was I okay asking for that. And so I descended into drinking and a little bit into madness, and um, I'll always take that seriously. Despite any jokes I say about it, like, I hold it dear. I hold my sobriety dear. Mm-hmm. Um, I notice when things are flagging my sobriety, like, when I feel like it's in danger, and I take it very seriously, and it's very precious to me. Um and so Manic Pixie broke up, and I moved home to where I grew up in California. And mm-hmm. I spent about a year at home eating ice cream on the couch with my dog, who is the same breed as your dog, which is why I'm such a fucking creeper about Banjo all the time. Because he oh. looks like my boy. I didn't realize that. Yeah, my boy's a blue healer, too. And I'm like, oh, my boy! Oh, Andrew was in here earlier. I was petting him, but then he started like wanting to wrestle and get riled up. I was like, dude, I'm I'm like recording a podcast. I can't fucking wrestle you right now. Oh, Banjo! Totally. So I did this, you know, I spiraled into addiction. I moved home. I went to rehab. Or it was a relational recovery center. So I had to make that really clear because if anyone was like, Kat went to rehab, I should too. I did not have to dry out, and some people really do. Um, yeah. And I'm lucky I didn't have to dry out, and I'm lucky I didn't end up in the psych ward because that was also on the table. But um, I went to the right place for me. Um, so, so I lived with my parents. That. Thank you. I'm happy to hear too. <laughs> so I lived with my parents, and Doggy Boy and I spent a lot of time eating ice cream on the couch together because I had lost a considerable amount of weight. I was very underweight. Mm-hmm. I was like 100 pounds at one point. Okay. Uh, that means that if Doggy Boy ate like a big ham, he'd be heavier than me at times. <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah. But so I was losing weight. I lost a bunch of my hair. Um, and I was pretty sickly in my early sobriety, so I had to live at home and not work. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because I wasn't healthy enough. Uh-huh. And I wasn't able to sleep very well because I was in night care all the time. So it's just like really brutal. Yeah. So yeah. all I really did at the time was go to AA and write songs privately in my room uh, and go to therapy. AA therapy and songwriting is all I did for like a year. And I worked at World Market for a hot minute. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, that's what I did. And then I I went back to Philadelphia for a bit on a secret mission to see if I was sorry, I know you have a siren and I don't want you to have to cut all this out. Um, yeah, I'm going to mute this part. 
We're holding for the siren. Oh no, it's heading towards where that other ambulance went. I hope I hope they're not related. Um So do I. Um, okay, sorry, you get back. No, it's okay. So I lived at home and then I went back to Philly for a hot minute to see what I my next move was. Mm-hmm. And my next move um turned out to be LA, but it was the last move on my list that I wanted to do. Uh-huh. I had never wanted to live in LA. I had stigma around LA. I made a big mm-hmm. list of what I thought what was on the table for me. And then I um I went to Philly and was like, How do I feel? And Philly felt over, um, at the time. Um, you know, I I don't write it off now because like I'm in a different place and my partner's from Philly, you know, and I've learned in my life to never write something off long term. Mhm. Um, totally. Totally. Because often you'll just eat your words and look like a fool. Yeah, you know? exactly. That's why Jimmy's never say die. Yeah. So, but I did <laughs> write it up. But in the moment, I realized it was over for seeing it. And then I realized, well, fuck, I guess I'm moving to L.A. And it was really random. Like, I was in Philly on my best friend's couch, was watching a movie. And then I, it just hit me. And I turned to her, I'm like, I'm moving to L.A. Uh-huh. Uh, like, it became as clear as day. Um, so then after I got back, I started packing up my life. Not that I had much of one. Um, I could fill my car with the amount of possessions I had at that point. Mm-hmm. And then I moved to L.A. And I just knew I had to be there, here. I knew it in my soul, despite my personal feelings about Los Angeles at the time. Um, will you tell me a little bit about, as someone who's had L.A. on his bottom of list of potential places to move for, a, for like a decade now, uh, how, uh, um, like, can you tell me a little bit about, like, some of the stigmas you thought about L.A. or things that you thought about L.A. that have been different or you've actually ended up liking? Um, you know, just tell me a little bit about, about how that's changed for you. Sure. I thought shallowness. I was really turned off by the idea that people were going to be shallow and image obsessed. Not that, you know, we talked a lot about aesthetics, but there is a difference between being obsessed with image yeah. and fame and being and then caring about how you package something. There is a real difference. And I was just like, oh, everyone's fame obsessed. Everyone's shallow. Like, no one's going to be my real friend. Mm-hmm. You know? And then, like, everyone's going to be just wanting to figure out who's going to get them famous. And, like... That's what I've heard. And then I've, I've played two shows with you in L.A. now and had the best shows I've ever had in L.A. And everyone I've met that are friends with you seem like real genuine people who are actual, like, genuine friends. And it seems like a community... So yeah, seems like even I've seen how that's been proven wrong, you know, because I, I, oh. I've had such a great time playing like the response that your your friends or fans or whatever you want to put it has had to like us playing in town has been so great the past two times that we've been there. So, um, so yeah, that's really cool. Oh, yeah. And I, I really I only understood L.A. from living here. I now believe that New York is a city that is most enjoyable as a tourist and a visitor, and LA mm-hmm. is the most enjoyable city, is more enjoyable to live in than it is to visit. Um, ah, that's interesting. You know, in a lot of ways. The quality of life here is really good, and the work-life balance here is really good. People very much care about work-life balance. You know, 
in a meaningful way. Like they want to make money. They want to have a good quality of life. You know, they want to live in a good place and have that, but they want to enjoy life as well and be healthy. They want to be healthy. Um, and granted, like being sober here is wonderful in terms of like, I don't, a lot of the things that turned me off from moving back to Philly was the sobriety element. I was like, am I going to be able to keep my sobriety or mm-hmm. is there just too much drinking here? Yeah, people love drinking in Philly and New York, but Philly for sure. Yeah, it's a drinker's town. It's drinker's paradise. It's cheap. Your rent's cheap. You can spend all your money on alcohol and everything's Yeah. It's a small city, so you can usually walk home from the bar. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, here like you're, it's not such a drinking town because everyone drives, and you have to drive, and it's big, so you have to drive to most places unless you have like a neighborhood bar. And mm-hmm. people really like health; they like to be healthy. Plus, there's the industry element where like you never know who's gonna get you your opportunity, so no one ever wants to get shit faced and make a fool of themselves. Uh, yeah, I've definitely been shit faced and made a fool of myself in LA a couple times. Uh, <laughs> well, living here, you learn that you got to be careful around that. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't really do that at all anymore, but it's, I think I still have an out. Well, I never paid this ticket, but I got a littering ticket for flicking a cigarette butt into Hollywood Boulevard in front of some cops. <laughs> Pretty, I, I was, like, wasted, and I, I told them to fuck themselves, and... Uh, you know, pretty much was lucky I didn't get arrested, even though it was, I was just like, fuck you, this is, you're writing me a ticket for flipping a cigarette in the street? I can see 100, 300 cigarettes on the fucking ground right now. Like, fuck off. And they like, <laughs> they wrote me the ticket, so I like chewed it up and spit it out. I was like, fuck you, I'm not paying that. <laughs> I was that drunk. Uh, I don't know how I didn't go to jail. That's what we call white privilege. Uh, yeah, and, it is. Uh, yeah. My my friend somewhere, yeah, my friend somewhere has that ticket. I've never paid it because it came in the mail and it was like a twelve hundred dollar fine, and I was like, yeah, I'm not paying that. So I might have oh, a warrant yeah. in California. <laughs> I had an experience with that and that ticket too. So um, I get you, but yeah, LA is not what I thought it was going to be, and it's hilarious because it's the first city I ever lived in that I didn't want to move to. Um, uh-huh. I called to move here. I felt like there was a reason. And it made a lot of logistical sense for me in a lot of ways. But, oh, boy, did I not want to do it. And then I fell in love with it. So I ate my words. That's great. Um, That's awesome. I love that people aren't superficial here. Here's the deal. What they actually are are people who are very mindful of how much of themselves they're putting out there and are economical about how their time is spent. They want mm-hmm. People want balance here. And because you have to drive hours to get somewhere, a lot of Depending on traffic, they want to make the most of their time, and sometimes that can come off as like star fucking. And I don't, I don't. It'll come off as Charles. I don't care that you haven't been to L.A. in three years. I'm not driving across town to catch your show. <laughs> exactly. So there's that element too. And so when someone shows up, because of the level of like traffic can get in the way of things, it means mm-hmm. something, you know. It's a compliment. There's also, like, there's a lot of fame seeking here. Um, That is probably the the most toxic part of L.A., but there's a toxic Mm -hmm. element to every city. Yeah. You know? Um, New York's workaholism is crazy. Like, why do you want to work here? The air and the rat shit and the, um, (laughs) you know, there's there's all kinds of toxic things. Miserable. In New York, yeah. they like you're at a party and they're like, "I'm so miserable. Look how cool I am." And I'm like, "It's not cool to be miserable." Um, yeah, that's pretty. And here in LA, people would look at you. Oh, I know. 
And then Philly, the problem is you, like, can't swing your dick there without hitting someone you fuck. It's just so small. That's how Salt Lake City felt at a certain point. <laughs> yeah, and so, like, people go micro with everything. Like, they they lose themselves in teen drama. They lose themselves in the smallness. You know? Yeah, totally. Yeah. That's, uh, and that can be toxic. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, but L.A. is awesome. I mean, it's, you know, it's not for everybody, but I think like it's big, so there's this anonymity to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and anonymity. We're like, if you if you don't have the best experience at a show, or you like rub someone the wrong way, like it's too big for that to be your only shot. There's totally. also a million opportunities here. Like if you just keep yourself open, you can have like the most opportunities. You know, like. Yeah, that's that's uh. You have to be really open person. Sorry, what was that? I was saying like you have to be the open person. Uh huh. You know, like you have to show up to it and go maybe to everything. Yeah, you got to say yes to things. That's something I, when I was younger, especially when I first moved to New York, and I still struggle with this because of my anxiety, um, and because I'd just rather be by myself most of the time. Is like you got to say yes to things because that's how you meet people. That's how you get a credit on a thing that's how you you know like they're just like how you get jobs is just saying yes to things um you don't i mean i think you also need to be um be selective you know like and make sure that your you know your time is valuable and understand that like you were saying about people in la but um you know it's uh it's i usually very rarely regret saying yes to a thing um and so I, I keep trying to remind myself that, you know, it's like, yeah, do the, go, go to the hangout in the park with the people you don't know very well. It's, it's going to be a little uncomfortable, but it's mostly going to be fun. <laughs> totally. And LA is about putting yourself out there. Like this is mm-hmm. the city that, that serves and rewards the open individual, you know, go to the place, you know, no one like but you're interested in what the kind of event is go to the thing. When I moved here, I met this man who, we talk about, like, everyone in music kind of knows him here on the east side, which he is the person who, he runs an app that tells you what to do on any given night, like what all the events are. Oh, cool. And I had a friend tell me, she's like, you go out with, not go out with him romantically, but I'm like, he, she was like, if you go to every event he tells you to go to for two months, you'll be set. That's what I did. So I got here and was completely exhausted, because for two months I was going mm-hmm. to an event every single night. Um, I was so exhausted, but it it really helps. So, um, and that's like a music advice, not necessarily an everyone advice, but. Um, no, totally. That uh, seems uh, seems very a great way to also just like in two months meet so many people and be able to like make so many connections and and kind of pick and choose like oh that person seems really interesting, I want to follow up with them about the thing and. I feel like I'm my life in New York is kind of static at this point where I just don't meet a whole lot of new people. That's the hard thing about being sober is like I don't I don't go to things unless I'm playing a show or my friends are playing a show and I usually know most of the people at mine and my friends shows. So <laughs> you know, it's like Yeah. Yeah. It, it can be hard to And if you get that way here and you learn a lot here about um the different kinds of currency in our industry. Like, money mm-hmm. isn't the only one. I know there's all those jokes on, like, memes about, like, it's paying and exposure. But money yeah. is not the only currency in this world. Uh-huh. And, like, yeah. 
I'm grateful for Bitcoin. the Yeah, Bitcoin. There are more currencies. <laughs> there are currencies of time, currencies of showing up, like of sharing things on the internet. Yeah. Uh, currencies of leaving a review for your favorite podcast that you might be listening to right now. And yeah, that's you should totally leave a review. Who knows what will happen? A rating and a review for your fav- for your favorite podcast because it makes a big difference for the podcaster. But yeah, there's all kinds of different currencies in this world. <laughs> yeah, I mean, currencies. You can't see me as I'm winking. Yes, of course. You're like, I like the money one the best, but there are other ones. I guess. <laughs> Um, but LA, like people have big dreams here, but they also recognize that like the city rewards the open-minded individual, you know, like if they want to be a famous singer, they don't close them off to only singing opportunities. Like maybe I'll do acting. Like I, all my friends do a million different things here, you know, like they may be a guitar player, but they're also a photographer. They're also doing voice work. They're also doing like, you know, events company stuff. They're also doing graphic design because everyone in L.A. knows that you never know where something's going to come from. You just have to keep yourself open. And that's the thing I love most about this city is that it rewards the open person. Um, it rewards the person who is willing to keep, to keep something in mind they wouldn't necessarily keep in mind and to diversify so, like, mm-hmm. the story I've told you of, like, me being in a band and my band being my only and my everything, it doesn't work uh-huh. here in L.A. Uh-huh. Uh, you want the opposite. You want, like, three bands plus all these different side gigs uh-huh. plus putting on shows plus this plus that. And, of course, you need the balance, but you want to take that energy you would have put into one thing and diversify because you just never know which honeypot is, like, going to be the honeypot. You know, and you mean, have to lose, you have to let go of control. Yeah, I mean, I sounds like I'm on the LA page with my touring and my podcasting and my YouTubing and my. Uh, yes. Yeah. Okay. No, that's uh, I I dig that. I really I really uh, like everything you've had to say about LA. It's it's something that I've, you know, I've I've had that like you said, it's been on my list of places I would potentially move to like for a long time. But it's always been kind of low on the list. Um, it was at the bottom of mine. Yeah. The very bottom. But I love it. <laughs> and, again, like, it's really helped me see my music career differently. Like, I have Guyville, I have my stuff, and then I have um, a duo or, like, a songwriting, co-writing production duo with a friend of mine, House Music. Uh-huh. Well, and yeah, let's tell me about everything that. that you – oh, sorry, what were you saying? I put time into all of them because I never know what seeds are going to sprout into flowers, you know? Totally, yeah. No, that's uh, – I think that's super valuable. Um, and it also keeps things fresh, especially if you're going for different aesthetics or different visions like we talked about earlier with each thing. It can kind of, like, scratch a different itch with each project. Yeah, it does. And it's so – it helps you let go of so much control um, because mm-hmm. I also do – work as a singer, um, I teach, I'm a music teacher, and I'm a poet, and I'm working on my poetry book, and I just, sent, like, the artist just sent me final cover last month, and, oh, cool. uh, yeah, and here I'm kind of open to do, trying most things, I did some acting, um, you know, now I book a songwriter night here, so I'm on the more promoter side, too, 
you just never know. Um, totally. And LA, LA, like, it's the opposite of New, of New York. New York, like, everyone needs to be one thing. And that one thing needs to work out. And if you work 80 hours of the one thing, you'll get there. Here, everyone wants to be a million things because they know from living in L.A. that a life-changing opportunity could come through any avenue. And if you close yourself off to one thing, and work your darndest at that one thing, you'll be great at what you do, but that doesn't mean you'll get the success you're looking for. It just means you'll be incredibly good at your craft. No, that's, uh, that's, that's, I've never looked at LA that way, but it's very true. It seems like there's a lot more stories of like, um, just people just getting the opportunity of a lifetime just because they're in the right place, right time. It, like, I feel like that story seems to be more commonplace in LA than it does uh, New York and my experience in New York is like I don't really see a whole lot of opportunities that I don't like like fight tooth and nail for and I'm just not really like in the mood to fight like that these days so I just don't play in New York a whole lot because it's just like I don't I, I don't like want to compete with this shit <laughs> it's a circus and I don't yeah. know how to like get people to care and again diversifying here is the answer um, in my opinion um mm-hmm. I love all my different pockets of life, and I believe in all of them, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, I believe they could bring something great. Um, um, can I mean, you tell me? Or sorry, go ahead. Finish yeah. that thought, please. Oh, I just was going to say, like, I mean, I've had so many cool things happen in my life here that weren't from my main thing or what mm-hmm. I saw as my main thing, you know? I mean, yeah, like, can you, uh, yeah, give me an example if you don't mind. I mean, the Expedia commercial has changed my life that I did financially. Yeah, tell us my a little bit more about that. Um, tell me, tell us a little bit about, uh, or as much about that as you can. I, I know we're, we're just past the two hour mark at this point, so. Yeah, I'm going to have to go soon. But I yeah, will tell uh, you. Um, Tell me a little bit about that, and then tell me about what you've got going on this summer, because you got a lot of travel and things like that, a lot of uh, touring with different projects. And I really want everyone to be up to speed on that. So give me a little bit about uh, the Expedia commercial. The Expedia commercial happened because of one lunch. So mm-hmm. it's a great example of take the lunch. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a lunch with a friend of mine who does music for commercials. He was like, we occasionally need singers. You know, bend over. You're singing. And I, um, you know, I did, but, like, everyone says to send something over. Yeah. You know? That doesn't yeah. mean anything. No. <laughs> so it's not I like I got, over like five, six. Yeah. Um, so then about a year after that lunch, he hit me up, and he's like, we need someone who sounds exactly like Rashida Jones for this big Expedia commercial, and we think you'd be perfect. Like, this isn't an official offer because there's going to be about 100 singers demoing for it. Mm-hmm. And he's like, but I directly referred you and showed the experience. Uh, and they'd like you to demo. Um, so I was actually, he was like, we need a demo by the end of the weekend. And it was Friday night. And I was at my parents' house with no recording equipment. None. I had no way of demoing. Mm-hmm. 
um, for this project that was the longest long shot of long shot. You know, me and a hundred people. Yeah. Yeah, and you um, you had like a, plenty of excuses to be like, ah, fuck it, I'm not gonna do it. Exactly. I had plenty of excuses not to do it. It would take an immense amount of work to figure out figure it out, or I'd have to buy all this gear from Guitar Center and then return it. Um, <laughs> but Which I'm not above luckily, doing. My men- no. So my mentor Tom, <laughs> the one I told you about, I called him and I'm like, I might have a big gig. I'm like, it's a really long shot. Do you have any? Do you have an interface and some mics and stuff I can borrow? And he's like, Yep, I'll bring them over. So he dropped them off. I set up in my mom's closet, and I demoed that weekend. Um, uh-huh. And they did pay. They paid me to demo uh, because it was a requested demo, not an open call. Um, which there's a bit of a difference. Yeah. Um, so that's cool. So they did pay me. But I demoed for a couple of days. I submitted for it. And then, and on GarageBand. It was on GarageBand in my mom's closet on, a, like, an mm-hmm. MSL. That's awesome. And so then a few days pass, and they go, we want you to sound less good. Can you demo again? But be pitchier and less in time. That's essentially what they were saying. Uh-huh. So like, you sound too like, good sure. for this. For yes, that's what they said. They said I sounded too good. That's uh, they that's bananas. Okay, cool. So then I demoed again, sent my stems over, same setup, my mom's closet, garage band, and like a demo mic. Then two months passed, uh-huh. and basically my friend told me, if they're going to go forward with you, they'll put you in a proper studio, and you'll do the real thing. You know, and you'll pay, be paid for those hours. Mm-hmm. So two months passed. I forget about it. I'm like, I obviously didn't get it. They haven't put me in the studio. And so then I get a text from him on like a sun, Saturday morning. He's like, so we're filming with Rashida right now, and they're using your audio. He's like, you haven't been officially given the job. But he's like, he's like, but this is a good sign. And so That's then I cool. sort of just sat there, and I was like, what? <laughs> um, I've been here for two months. Okay. And so then – um. They, I didn't really hear much, and no one was putting me in the studio. And, like, they had garage band stems with, like, dog barks and footsteps. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, but as long as it's in time, you know. Yep, and the next thing I know, it's airing during the Oscars. So I found out with everyone else. <laughs> what? They used my garage band stems. Really? Then my closet stems. That is wild. So I found out I got picked up out of like the hundred singers because it aired during the Oscars, and then I cried. <laughs> um, I mean, I so I had an inkling cool. of the job, but I didn't know for a fact. And then they picked me up for um, they picked up the commercial for um, the UK as well, I think. Um, so you're going to be seeing some decent royalty checks in the next, like, six months or so. I've actually gotten all my royalty checks. Um, I hit my limit. Oh, really? So you, um, when you do a uh, SAG job, you have a limit um, often. Uh, I mean, it's a great limit. Like, I'm not, you know, it's turned out well. Um, but I have great. received no, cool. all I've never had, Yeah, I don't know how that works. So that, that's that's really cool. The only thing is if they ever decided to, like, pick up the commercial again for syndication for another run. But 
I mean, that's that would be silly because it's now old and mm-hmm. everyone's seen it. Yeah. Um, but that was what happened. And it really changed me things financially for me and it enabled a lot of really cool things. So, you know, hopefully it happens again in my life, but if not, I feel like I did a national commercial during the Oscars and the Bachelor. You know, me and my partner would be watching TV and there I was singing. So it was pretty surreal. That's wild. That's so cool, Kat. I didn't realize it aired during the Oscars. I'm uh, and that you didn't and know. And the Bachelor. It was crazy. That is very cool. Very, very cool. Um, and that was now. You know. Yeah. Totally. Um, that's really cool. I I love that for you, and I'm so happy. And it's um, yeah, and it's cool to to hear that things like that happen because sometimes you're just like, I'm just going to be selling records to people I went to high school with forever. And I'm totally fine with that because they like the songs I write <laughs> and I like getting to see them on tour. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like cool to hear that, Oh, those, those opportunities do exist. And people I knew, I know can and do get them. So that's, that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, it's the reason people come to LA is the chance and look at what happened. Like totally. Very I didn't cool. think it was going to um, happen. But it happened. Can you um, tell me, you know, before we wrap everything up, I, I really love this conversation. I uh, I really. I know. We've been having a nice time. This is the longest we've ever yeah. talked. <laughs> no, it really is. And I, um, I, there's like a handful of other things I still want to ask you, but like, I feel like we've had such a great podcast that it's like, maybe down the road we'll talk again. So um, yeah. I want you to now just just tell everyone like, you know, I know you got a lot of things going on this summer. Um, tell everyone a little bit about the projects you're working on now, what's going on in the next few months, and where they can find out more about it. Uh, so I'm going on a national tour, um, and not all the dates have been put out there yet. So if you don't see dates in your city, that doesn't mean I'm not coming there. It just means they haven't been solidified, because as you know, Charles, sometimes things sometimes things take a while. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, and- shows on my last tour were changing – like up until like 48 hours before we played them in some cases. Exactly. Shit changes. So it's been, I'm going on a national tour. It's going to be the whole U.S. pretty much. Um, And it is a solo tour as myself. And then, and then there's a tour as Guyville as well. So Emily, my duo partner will be meeting me on the East coast and we will be doing a run, which you will be a part of. Um, Uh Uh-huh. Austin and New York city. Yep, and um, it's going to be a lot of fun. And then, yes. yeah, so I'm going to be solo for most of it. There won't be a backing band. There will be people. I have tour support, people hopping in and hopping off um, who might back me for a few songs and stuff like that. But it's an opportunity for people to just see me with a guitar. It's um, It's been something I've wanted to do for a long time. It's a part of something I want for my personal growth. Um uh-huh. Even if I come out in the red financially, it's what I want to grow because being, you know, being on stage by myself has really scared me in my songwriting and my artistry, and I want to get better, and I want to become more comfortable and um, experience that and work on that art form. Um, uh-huh. Because as you know, it's a different art form than being in a band. Yeah, you know, it's very different. Um, they, they work side, you know, they, they help each other doing both, but... Uh, and they inform each other, but you can't learn one without doing it. Yes. So I'm excited. I'm going to be solo tour. I will be doing a West Coast leg with my friend Allie Coyle. 
Um, I will mm-hmm. be doing an East Coast to the South leg with Guyville. Um, I'll be doing some East Coast dates, you know, with my friends No Grudges, who are a New York band, and then Guyville will be doing some East Coast dates with you. And we'll also be, um, I'll be doing East Coast dates with my friends Megawave, who are in Long Island. And then mm-hmm. um, I'll be doing a Southwest date. My Southwest or my Southwest run hasn't been announced yet um, with my friend Alan okay. Murphy. Um, cool. Um, and so it's going to be a wild ride. I'm so excited to follow along and to, to see how all of that goes. And uh, um, can you tell me, or like, let us know where we can find out more about it, where we can find you on the Internet? And uh, So the best place and- – oh, I'm sorry. I don't know. You know, go ahead. I'll, I'll add this this next part after you tell us where to find you. The best thing you can do is follow me on at Cat Hamilton Official, Cat with a K, Hamilton mm-hmm. like the musical and official, um, because I mostly post on Instagram. There is an official tour poster coming out that'll be running as ads. It'll be put on blogs, so you will see it around. Mm-hmm. Um, I am starting to do TikTok, but I am a TikTok old lady and don't know what the fuck I'm doing and. I'm majorly at a learning curve, so all the patience is appreciated with that. And yeah, the best place is Instagram. Um, you'll get the most up-to-date changes. The tour flyers are already changing. Like I announced on Friday, and there's already changes. Uh-huh. Um, so I'm going to be announcing changes. And the cool thing about the tour is there's going to be venue venues, house shows, cat like coffee shops. Like it's going to be. Backyards, like there will be so many different kinds of shows. Yeah, yeah, there that's the best part about days. a solo tour. Exactly, and there are multiple dates in New York and Boston, and there will be multiple dates in Nashville as well. You'll be seeing me differently. There's one of Skyville and one of me in like each city. Mm-hmm. There's also multiple dates in Philadelphia, but if you're like can't make one date, you can see me on another. Uh huh. Which I also excited about is this idea of playing multiple shows as different people, sort of. Because Guyville Me is a lot more fun than Solo Me. Mm-hmm. The music's yeah. more fun. And so it gives it, I mean, you've seen us play a couple times now. It, it, it's a different energy than my solo stuff. My solo stuff's way more serious. I deal with topics uh-huh. such as suicidality and mental health issues and addiction. And in Guyville, we just talk about boys. and Well, not just, but we talk a lot about boys, and I love it. Because I don't date boys, uh-huh. but my co-writer does. It's really fun to be like, come in and go, pour myself a cup of coffee and go, tell me about your boy problems. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. You know? I, I mean, I love playing with Guyville. I really love your guys' music, and you have such a great presence. Um, and so, and I'm so excited for you to learn more about the, or like to be experiencing playing solo and, and sharing your solo stuff too, because I really love there's one of your Cat Hamilton records that I listened to quite a bit when it came out. Um, Recovery song? Yeah, that one. I really dug that record. I still do dig that record. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, um, I mean, it had a small yeah. but, but mighty release. Um, that's how I've been calling it. It was small and mighty. As in, like, there's, like, a handful of listens on Spotify, but I get messages every week from people telling me how much it affected them, you know? Yeah, And people totally. telling me they played it in their Instagram. Or for like mental health awareness groups, you know, that's, someone that's told me about them through rehab. Oh my God, that's and that's I was so like, cool. You know, I get I cry whenever I get these messages. I mean, I personally think that because uh, I 
I've had experiences with people giving sending me messages that just like uh, tore me apart and was so like just amazing, just beautiful. And it's uh, um, and I have to remind myself that it's like, see, it, you may not make a bunch of money off of that, but that's cooler than being added to a Spotify editorial playlist. You know, like both would be great. You know what I mean? But like, I'd rather my songs be out there affecting people on that level. Um, you know, it's like, like that means more to me than whether or not some algorithm or some, some tech person who thinks they like music, um, thinks, you know, my, my song works on their playlist. Agreed. And I'm, I'm really like, I love my small but mighty release, you know? Yeah. That's my whole career. It's a small but mighty career. <laughs> yeah. I loved it. I love the way that people come to me. You know, sometimes it can be overwhelming because they're asking for advice. Uh -huh. Um, but like, what a cool position to be in of people like, not just like loving the songs you make, but like relating to you on that level Yeah. and like reaching out when they're at the bottom of something and being like, this changed me, this helped me, this made this easier for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's. That's like one of the coolest things that I've experienced as an artist, and um, I love that your record's done that for people. Yeah, and my and next one's gonna be way less serious, um, mo mm -hmm. mostly because I just can't. Sing, you know, trigger warning here, but I can't sing songs about wanting to kill myself all the time. And I didn't. Yeah, that, that, I didn't I can, realize yeah, that taking that on was gonna be so painful. Uh huh. What yeah. did you say? No, it can. That gets difficult. Um, trying to. Like continuing that, like writing this, just just existing in that space, even if if it is trying to be cathartic or to try and like shine some light on how it feels to feel that way, um, it's hard to exist in that space all the time. I and I can I can relate. So that's all I was saying about trying to write like oh, happier yeah. or like less super heavy songs. Yeah, my next release is for my personal stuff is called I Wish This Was a Love Story. Um, mm -hmm. And it's about one relationship through every angle. Um, so it's just about one oh, cool. relationship with one person, but every song has a different emotion that it embodies. There's regret, remorse, desire, like cure, and like all these different emotions. And so it's about how like the story changes based on where you're at in your own healing, you know? Like when we complain mm -hmm. to our friends about our fuck asshole ex, like that's anger, but that's not the whole story. Totally. Or if you talk about how much you miss our asshole ex, there's longing. That's not the whole story either. Mm -hmm. So the new EP is called I Wish This Was a Love Story. I don't know when it's going to come out, but it's pretty much done. I just am timing it with the Geizo releases, like accordingly, and money. Uh -huh. Also money. Yeah. Um, totally. And it's everything but a love story, in my opinion. Cool. Um, I'm excited to hear that. That sounds really, really cool. Um, I, you know, speaking of the money thing, this is the final thing that I'll ask. Um, you mentioned the, the tour hopefully not coming back in the red. How can people support you um, to make sure that that, that that's not the case, you know? Um, right now, what's the best way for people if they want to support you in a financial way? Um, for me, it's like Patreon. That's the thing that I, that and like buying merch. Uh, how about for you? Honestly, I'm really bad at my Patreon and I'm ashamed. Mm -hmm. 
um, of my Patreon. <laughs> um, so what I would say is just Venmo me <laughs> at cat with a K, capital cat, dash, capital H, Hamilton. At Cat Hamilton. You can Venmo me if you feel like it. Because you can yeah, buy yeah. my record, too. Uh, mm-hmm. But don't underestimate the power of Venmo. Like, if you want to listen to my music, buy the record. But if you just want, like, to throw me a fiver, just Venmo me. You know? Yeah, I, I honestly definitely want to just, like, normalize that for people. I, I mean, I, maybe that is kind of normal. In my experience, I have a, a fan base of supporters that, like, that that do that a lot. And, you know, like, when I'm on tour or whatnot, or they'll, like, buy a postcard for me for some gas money or something like that. And that's how, that's what helps keep it all afloat. So normalize Venmoing your artist friends five bucks when when you feel like you want to give them five bucks to keep being artists. Um, exactly. Like, I mean, if you want to listen to my music, great. Like, go listen to it. But I don't want you, I, like, you can also just send me money. And honestly, another way of supporting me, like, is just, like, put your computer on. Put on my song on Spotify, whichever one is the least annoying to you. Turn it down to, like, volume level one, where you can barely hear me. Put it on loop for, like, 24 hours. That helps me. Totally. I always tell people to make a playlist if you're hardcore. Do, like, 10 of your favorite independent artist songs on a playlist and play that while you sleep. That way that they don't catch you and flag you for looping one artist, because sometimes they can do that, I feel like. But, um... I'm, uh, let's see. We've almost hit the two and a half hour mark. This is a yeah. We gotta. A, we do have to get on the call because I've got a lot to do today before writers round. Yeah. Um, this is um. And I don't. Want this has been a great. Oh, you. Uh, oh, this has been a great conversation. I've enjoyed every minute of it. Um, you're you're Cat Hamilton official on Instagram and Guyville the duo on Instagram. On Instagram, yeah. Yeah, so I was going to say that as well. If you want to follow Guyville, like, our stuff is way more upbeat than my stuff. Mm-hmm. And I find that, like, if you listen to my stuff, you'll get depressed. So if you'd like to listen to something less depressing, listen to Guyville. Mm-hmm. Um, totally. Or mix it together and get a nice little balance. Yeah, with two singles out. They're really fun. I really love them. Um, and we're going to put out a third single before uh, before our leg of the tour in July. So, um Make sure to stay in touch and DM me. Like, I love DMs. I love getting people's feedback. You know, obviously, like, kind, please. But, like, I love getting people's feedback where they're like, I really love this song. Or, you know, like, that helps me a lot emotionally with mental health. Because you can feel, like, shit about yourself. And then someone sends you one message and you're like, I'm fine again. Yeah, totally. Um, Thank you so much for having me on this. Pleasure. Of course. This um, has been awesome. Um, yeah, we'll if I, we'll definitely talk on text messages and things like that while we're planning these shows. So I'll talk to you soon, Kat. Everybody, thank you so much for tuning in to A Dirtbag's Guide to Life on the Road. And uh, until next time, safe travels. Yeah, I'm a dirtbag, too. Yeah, you did I it. I want to be a dirtbag, too. You did it. I did it. You're I'm an honorary dirtbag. Dirt Okay, yeah, you're an honorary <laughs> dirtbag. Such a good band name. Yeah. Yo, if anyone wants to name their band honorary dirtbag. Um, yeah, please. I'll just t- tag us in something so we can know we, we spawned a band name. Exactly. 
All right, Charles, I'm going to get back to work on my million bajillion tasks. But this was an awesome thing, and I really I can't wait to see you on tour and, like, see Banjo and be weird about him and, like, start crying. Cause it's going to be great. Boy. It's going to be yeah. awesome. I'm so excited for your tour. I can't wait. People, go check out all the tour dates. Catch Cat while she's in your town. And, uh, yeah, we'll talk soon. Oh, also, I just wanted to say one more thing. If you cannot mm -hmm. afford to attend a show I'm playing, don't hesitate to DM me. Sometimes I can work something out and put you on a guest list, and I hate when I hear that someone didn't go because they didn't have $10 or whatever. I hate that. Like, Oh, totally. That's a, that's a, that goes for me, too. I mean, don't, don't abuse it, but, like, if you need to go to a show and you don't have the money, I remember wanting to go see Lucero once in Salt Lake City, but it was like 40 bucks and I couldn't afford it. And I didn't go to that show and I was really, really bummed, but I just couldn't afford it. Same with Against Me oh. and Green Day when they toured together. I was devastated. Oh. Um, but want to see me, give me the opportunity to maybe put you on a guest list. That's like a pro hack right here. If I have two guest yeah. list spots in, like, in Boise, I don't know many people in Boise who I would naturally give those guest spots to, so don't hesitate to reach out on Instagram. I check mm -hmm. my DM. Unless you're weird and lead with, like, nice titties, then I don't check the DM. Yeah, that's uh, that's an instant block whenever people compliment my titties. I mean, you know, you got the good <laughs> Sorry, ones. Sorry, I... <laughs> Sorry, that was a dumb joke. Uh, people don't send me those messages. Joke. Huh? What? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I guess what? Joke, Charles. Okay. Um, yeah. We'll uh, we'll talk soon, Kat. You have a great day and, and good luck getting all your stuff done for sure. Awesome. Thank you, Charles. You're welcome. Bye bye. Bye bye. bye.